Rundown is a show where four Catholic men opine on current affairs of the world, the matters of faith, culture, and politics. It's unfiltered, it's daring, and it's certainly unapologetic. The Rundown is a weekly news show. But it's more than that. It's a family of like-minded Catholics who are preparing for the coming chastisement. We cover church news, politics, and current events around the world, linking them in a way no one else does, giving you the perspective no one else can. The Rundown is not meant for children because it informs and prepares parents, young adults, seminarians, even priests watch The Rundown to know about the most pressing and evolving threats to the Catholic faith today. Brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. RestoringTheFaith.com Your weekly disinformation news and opinion show is here. The Fab Four are assembled. And we have so much to get through this week. The Fed taking historic action against generational high inflation. Biden walking back his own promises to throttle the energy industry. Fauci testifies before the U.S. Senate from his basement. And this week, we'll take you around the country in a whirlwind of violence, chaos, degeneracy, and carnage. That's really quite shocking. In church news, Francis has tripled down against those pesky traditionalists and in his latest salvo, stripped bishops of their ordinary rights to establish religious communities. Lots to get through tonight, ladies and gentlemen, but first, your favorite screaming cowboy. It is my opinion that you do not really understand the concept of banking. All the banks are broke. Uh, Bank Santander, Deutsche Bank, Royal Bank of Scotland, they're all broke. And why are they broke? It isn't an act of God. It isn't some sort of tsunami. They're broke because we have a system called fractional reserve banking, which means that banks can lend money that they don't actually have. It's a criminal scandal, and it's been going on for too long. To add to that problem, you have moral hazard, a very significant moral hazard from the political sphere. And most of the problem starts in politics and central banks, which are part of the same political system. We have counterfeiting, sometimes called quantitative easing, but counterfeiting by any other name. The artificial printing of money, which if any ordinary person did, they'd go to prison for a very long time. And yet governments and central banks do it all the time. Central banks repress the amount of interest that rates are, so we don't have the real cost of money. And yet we blame the real retail banks for manipulating LIBOR. The sheer effrontery of this is quite astonishing. It's central banks. It's central banks that manipulate interest rates, Commissioner. And plus, underneath all this, we talk loosely, in a rather cavalier fashion, do we not, about deposit guarantees. So when banks go broke through their own incompetence and chicanery, the taxpayer picks up the tab. It's theft from the taxpayer. And until we start sending bankers, and I include central bankers and politicians, to prison for this outrage, it will continue. If you could, if we could make you dictator, would you abolish the Fed? Yes. You would? Yes. I mean, for, for, for the reasons I just gave, the history. There's no, uh, you know, the Fed represented wonderful hopes, but, but we've had so many programs that represented wonderful hopes that ended in disaster. I don't doubt that someone who is sufficiently uh, scholarly could come up with examples of where the Federal Reserve made things better. 
But the question is, overall, what was it supposed to do? It was supposed to do not only prevent bank failures, it was supposed to prevent huge changes in the uh, money supply, in particular, uh, great deflations. Right. The greatest deflation in American history occurred under the Federal Reserve System. You know, we, we, there was a crisis in 1907. Uh, J.P. Morgan, the original J.P. Morgan, uh, called the other banks into a room, uh, supposedly locked the doors, and said, we've got to do something or we're going to all collapse. And they did something and they didn't all collapse. But, but, the, but people, the progressives were, were shocked that one man could come in and take command of the situation, and especially someone who wasn't even in the government. Right. So, but t so what would you do? You'd move us back to the gold standard, or you'd let no, banks no. issue their own currencies the way they did uh, up through the Civil War? Say you you could, I could, I could. Well, they weren't doing any of those things no. uh, as of the time the Federal Reserve was was created. We were on the gold standard though, but. Uh, it, it, whether we're on or off the gold standard, there's a, that's another whole set of arguments. There's no evidence that I can see that over this vast period of time that the Federal Reserve has existed, that things on the whole have been better. The great post-World War II uh, inflation was fed by the, Fed, by the Federal Reserve doing exactly what they're planning to do now, namely buying up the bonds issued by the Treasury. But what would you replace it with? How would the currency? Who who would? How would the currency run? We we we, we would replace it. We could replace it with what, what existed when it was created, which was the gold, gold standard. Well, it, maybe the gold standard, but maybe not. But I, but there's no evidence that I, these. What would you replace it? Things always bother me. You know, oh, I, they do? when someone removes the cancer, what do you replace it with? <laughs> okay. Does the president have the stamina, physically and mentally, do you think, to continue on even after 2024? Don, you're asking me this question. Oh, my gosh. He's the president of the United States. Don, you're asking me this question. Oh, my gosh. He's the president of the United States. You know, it, he, I can't even keep up with it. We just got back from New Mexico. We just got back um, from California. And by the way, my sympathies to your the family of your... F, uh, uh, your CFO, who uh, un dropped dead very unexpectedly, and my best to their family. It's tough stuff. Uh, that is, uh, I, 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 that is not a question that we should be even asking. To your the family of your, F, uh, uh, their. Uh, that is, uh, I, 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 that is. <laughs> story tonight gentlemen breaking news the fed is in action they have raised interest rates by 75 basis points the largest rate hike in a generation they are fighting generational highs of inflation they were faced ryan with a choice between fighting inflation or uh preventing a recession it looks like they chose one and not the other <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And uh, it wasn't the uh, fighting the recession one, <laughs> unfortunately. But that it, it's all inevitable, though. 
at some point it has to go. You can't run an alinear system in a linear world. Eventually you are going to hit where you run out of, uh, you're going to run out of paper to print the stuff on, or it's going to be the fact that the money will be so worthless. It's not going to be useful for anything, right? It's not going to be useful for currency. The, the idea behind a fiat currency and, and advocates for it will say, well, if they, the government just manages how much is in play, then, you know, it'll always be valuable and it'll never run out. But in the history of fiat currency, that's just never happened because you can't resist the temptation to solve your problems by printing up more debt. And so they were running up to that hard stop in everything in the economy. And then this doesn't even factor in how banks create uh, income that doesn't exist. Like we saw the, the first fellow there in the intro. I mean, none of checkbook money. Right. That's that's uh, never accounted for. Right. How the banks virtually create this stuff, not out of thin air, but on your promise to repay. And that's how this stuff gets out there. So we're hitting that point. And what's going to happen to the dollar when it's no longer valuable, say, abroad? It uh, will no longer be the re- reserve currency. They're not going to use it and they're not going to buy T-bills. Right. They're not going to buy Treasury bonds. The yields are going to go down. I mean, we got like 60 years to yield and you're only going to get half the value of it. Why are you going to invest in it? You're just not. And the day that doesn't happen, that's the day that the recession goes to a full on uh, beyond Weimar. We'll be, you know, Weimar like 3.0 when that happens. It's funny you mentioned that uh, Powell uh, just came out today with a statement about uh, the United States dollar and whether or not it would be the reserve currency in the world going forward, James. Looking forward, rapid changes are taking place in the global monetary system that may affect the international role of the dollar in the future. Most major economies already have or are in the process of developing instant 24-7 payments. Our own FedNow service will be coming online in 2023. And in light of the tremendous growth in crypto assets and stablecoins, we are examining whether a U.S. central bank digital currency would improve upon what is an already safe and efficient domestic payment system. Our, as our white paper on this topic notes, a U.S. CBDC could also potentially help maintain the dollar's international standing. What are you, gay? <laughs> <laughs> now, so what we're seeing is basically uh, fiat currency at play here. Uh, all this was uh, just come to peak. We haven't even seen the worst of it yet. Um, basically, uh, the central banks around the world are starting to get together and uh, raise interest rates. And um, I don't know how long this is going to take. It's going to be a slow unwinding process, or this could just uh, be a steady increase uh, that could spend shockwaves uh, shock summer. Uh, I'm not quite sure what's happening there, but uh, you know, people are still treating this. I mean, didn't we just have uh, Janet Yellen last week say? unpredictable um <laughs> which it's hard to uh to, to listen to her with a straight face or to listen to her with a straight face but that, that was what she was uh, saying at least about uh, a week and a half ago um, yeah. But, but, but yeah but but the reality is they all knew this was coming uh this is basically set forth by you know, principles of central banking which we've been involved in for a while now and since the, since the first uh bust you know whenever there's a boom there's a bust and we're in this whole uh, section with this section now, and uh, we don't know exactly how long this is going to play out, but uh, it's, it's pretty much smart to anticipate uh, it's going to get worse. Um, and then you know, when it when the uh, proverbial uh, you know, 
in a certain word hits this feeling of oh, hell will break loose. Yeah, and there are there are issues that Americans care about, Brother Martin. Uh, one of them is baby formula. The White House has an urgent update on baby formula shortage across the land. So I have two questions on baby formula. So first, um, what is the White House? What is the latest update the White House has received on the current infant formula situation across the country? Yeah, let me see if I have anything new for you on that. Uh, so I think it's been a couple of days since we have asked been asked that question. Okay. I don't have anything new. I know we made some announcements last week. Uh, I don't. I just don't have them in front of me. <laughs> I wish that excuse got me out of doing my homework. <laughs> <laughs> no update. <laughs> exactly. Let me just uh, look at my binder here. Uh, let me flip the tab over to this section. Oh, I think I left it in my desk. Um, yeah, nothing new. <laughs> but this is like this is like a a. a kitchen table issue mm-hmm. all right we've got we're going to cover the the dead cows in in kansas same cow breed that somehow survives the before we do that though isn't it as astounding how this woman has no she has no ability to do her job you look at uh, jen saki as uh, for as wicked administration as she works for and as personally bad as she may be yeah. she was good at her job she was good at deflecting misdirecting mismanaging dealing with all anytime there's nothing you couldn't throw at her uh that she could at, at least spin and, and try to make herself look somewhat decent yeah uh, i don't think i don't think it's handle new, a softball this new press secretary is not gonna find her way onto cnn prime time she might be on like cnn plus which doesn't exist anymore uh, I don't think I don't think I don't think she's getting that prime time spot. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, Plus, maybe she'll make it to the next Star Wars show. I mean, you're being a little too hasty there because you know John uh, uh, Don Lemon is on CNN, so he can get on. Anybody can get on. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I love seeing Don Lemon's face though when he's like, "No, really, I, I am asking you whether or not Biden's going to even live for 14 <laughs> more hours." I'm, I'm just wondering. <laughs> um, meanwhile, he's okay. Since we're on this subject of the White House press secretary, she is she has a very urgent announcement. And this was this is a real announcement. This isn't like uh, us making fun of her in the in the midst of uh, what is going to be the greatest recession, perhaps of the United States history and maybe the world as well. um, She has her priorities straight. Well, Actually, they're not straight. Uh, finally, this is the last thing here. Uh, following today's briefing, we know we have to gather at uh, four. You all have to gather at three forty-five. So try and take as many questions as possible. The president will sign an executive order advancing uh, equality for LGBTQI plus individuals, which includes historic steps to support LGBTQI plus families and children. The, e, the EO directs federal agencies to address extreme legislative attacks, help put an end to con- conversion therapy, improve mental health care, and prevent youth suicide, launch a new initiative to protect foster youth, and prevent homelessness, and more. These are historic actions that build on the progress we have made advancing equality for LGBTQI plus Americans. Pride is back at the White House. From day one, from day one, this has been the most pro-equality administration in history, led by guys like Pete Buttigieg. 
Booty judge. I think we have more LGBTQ plus people than any administration or every administration combined. No, I, I really mean it. All right, we got the gayest administration in the history of administrations, Ryan, by far, by a long shot. It's gayer than all the gays that even Trump could put into the White House combined with all 44 administrations prior to that even. This is this this is gay square, gay cubed. <laughs> it's gayer than Clinton. Remember uh, Bill Clinton, if you're old enough to remember Bill Clinton's presidency, uh, he was called the gay president because he was supposedly doing so much to advance gay rights, right? And that's like, you would vote for him <laughs> based on uh, what little he did compared to anything that's coming down in the future, right? Um, what's the I? Because I noticed that uh, the press secretary, she mentioned an I now. Is the I an official thing? What does that stand for? Insul or... Uh... I don't know. I'm, I'm lost on that one. But the surprise uh, it's not it's not uh, LGBT. Yeah. I'm surprised there isn't a P in it yet, uh, or whatever. But uh, anyway, well, I guess we'll get to that. But no, I mean, response to Biden, though. I mean, proper response to Biden. What are you gay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's it. Um, yeah, the, oh yeah, we're, we're it's like ticking a box. And even for people that, that do have gender dysphoria, who do have same-sex attraction, isn't this just pandering? Don't you feel pandered to? They, you know, it, just like when the corporations put up the rainbow flags for June and promptly take them down for July. Where were the corporations, you guys, everyone who's in the LGBTQ, I guess I now, and whatever else they're adding on to it, um, back in the days when uh, you know it wasn't so accepted, where were the corporations then? Nowhere. They, they don't care about you. Right? They don't. You know, all of this is just more and more pathetic pandering. And the reason is because, again, it's to destroy the family. It's a wedge to wreck and destroy the family. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter about people who are suffering gender dysphoria and people who are same-sex attracted and whatnot. They don't care about them. They're just being used to, again, you know, whatever legislation they can get in to further erode the family structure in this country. It's a perfect uh, distraction as well for, from uh, fake Catholic super in chief Joe Biden's uh, failed energy policies. This is what he promised on the campaign trail that he would do to the energy companies. Number one, no more subsidies for fossil fuel industry. No more drilling on federal lands. No more drilling, including offshore. No ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period. Ends. Okay. This is what uh, one of his proxies, uh, John Kerry, said just the other day. And energy security worry is driving a lot of the thoughts now about, oh, we need more drilling of gas. We need more drilling of this. We need to go back to coal. No, we don't. We absolutely don't. And we have to prevent a false narrative from entering into this or, again, uh, pun intended, we are cooked. Okay, so they're doubling down. We don't need to drill more, except... The White House press secretary is now appealing to the patriotism of those nasty energy companies that they weren't going to give any rights to. Hey, guys, it's your patriotic duty to make oil. In the letter from the president to the oil refinery, the refiners, he said they need to work with the administration to bring about a near-term solution. Is there an or else in there from the president? Is there some way that the administration 
plans to try to hold these count, uh, companies accountable. You use the word responsibility in your message right. at the top we, here. We see it as a patriotic duty, um, as where as we are, um, uh, as we've talked about. There's war happening uh, right now in Ukraine that was caused by uh, caused by Russia, which is why we're seeing uh, the, these hikes in gas prices, uh, especially with, as, since since Russia has amassed uh, started amassing uh, troops on the border. We saw a, we've seen a two dollar uh, increase of gas prices. So we know where to put the blame on the war. But uh, oil companies, they have oil refineries, they have responsibility too. What they have been doing is taking advantage of the war. And as, as I showed earlier, they have tripled uh, uh, tripled their, uh, their, their income. And so this is a problem. But what we're trying to do by putting out the letter, we are saying, hey, we need you to act. It is time to act. We want to have a conversation. We want to come to a solution. Uh, there is going to be a, a, a conversation later this this week. I uh, James, how do we get from no more drilling? You won't drill. No drilling on federal lands. No no Keystone XL pipeline. No exploration. No subsidies. No loopholes. To hey, it's your patriotic duty to drill, baby, drill. Comrade, drill. No defend labor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've essentially. Uh, kneecapped the oil in industry here, and they're expecting them to stand up and take more kneecapping. I don't understand. I mean, that's, that's what I'm getting from what the press secretary is saying. I understand English is not, oh, sorry, English is her first language. Um, actually, it's not. I mean, it, it, whatever she's saying, it doesn't make any sense because she's speaking words, but then her words are just, uh, you know, turning from page to page, whatever. Uh, you know, she pulls up, or, or rather, wherever she stops, she reads things out. So she's not making the most sense. We were told that uh, the reason why uh, there is a, a price hike is because of Russia. But we weren't told that uh, the Keystone Pipeline and other uh, uh, things that were happening under Trump, at, at least, uh, was going to be. I'm sorry, I'm losing you guys here. Am I am I breaking up? No, we got you. You're clear. Gotcha. Well, it looks like we lost you now. Uh, you're muted on your end. You're digitally muted anyway. But I think what James was saying is absolutely right. They have kneecapped the same industry that now they're crawling back to, Brother Martin. Uh, get you in on the energy discussion. You've recently been driving around the country. You've seen high gas prices. No relief in sight. People who are watching this show drive incredible distances to go to mass, Latin mass, because a lot of people don't live right next door to one. Um, so this is really, this is disproportionately affecting, in my opinion, the traditional Latin mass community, because you're talking about big gas guzzling vans, big families, single income families uh, like mine, where, you know, look, you got to figure out how to stretch your dollar just to get the kids uh, on the altar to serve, you know, it's like, um, what, what other choice do you have? You just have to eat this incremental cost to do it. Absolutely. And it kind of takes me back to what I experienced, uh, at a CVS right before lockdowns were about to happen. I was in line at a CVS, um, in a part, in a very urban, uh, part of the, the city. And there were, there were some people that obviously lived in the, in the, in the area who were talking in the line saying how they were going to, uh, very much suffered during the lockdowns precisely because they didn't have cars. They relied on public transportation. Uh, drive throughs would be closed because they don't, uh, 
or close off to them because they, they would have to walk up to the drive-thru and that's not allowed, all that kind of stuff. They can't bring their groceries back on their with, with just their hands for their families. Um, and so locking down would uh, would very much, which literally hurt, hurt them. And so I can imagine as much, much as the same with, with the gasoline prices that a lot of these poor people aren't even going to be able to drive their cars. And so it would affect their, their way of life um, in much the same way. One thing I did notice too in, in driving down to Florida was that um, – well, first of all, between uh, Missouri and Florida, Illinois, of course, has the highest gas prices. Um, but also a lot of people were, were opting to pay in cash, you know, just just five dollars on my tank, ten dollars on my tank, uh, as opposed to us- usually. I mean, a lot of people just pay at the pump, you know, just whatever it costs, it costs and, and move on. But a lot of people were, were, were very much uh, rationing out how much money they were able to allot towards gas and, and all that kind of stuff. And then if people can't drive, of yeah. course, it, it affects the economy and that people aren't spending money out and about. Um, so on and so forth. So it, it's, it's going to affect everybody much like a lockdown did. And I'm, I'm sure they wanted to do that during the lockdowns is, you know, people aren't staying home, raise the gas prices just as a deterrent. Um, but we'll, we'll see what the end game is, is all of this. I, I don't think it's going to drop anytime soon. Yeah. I don't, I don't see relief in sight. In fact, uh, the, the godfather of, of Catholic Twitter, um, editor of crisis magazine, Eric Sammons posted something pretty funny today. He, he showed um, the, uh, the signs of a gas station. I wish I could pull up the tweet. And there's only enough digits for like $9.99. Once it pops over $9.99, there's not enough digits to show yeah, like yeah. $10 gas. He says that the Biden administration, the Brandon administration really, has placed the gas uh, stations into like a Y2K type scenario where like <laughs> they know it's coming and they don't know if there's enough digits for Y2K, you know. Um, Tucker has something to say, uh, Ryan, and then James about bankrupting a nation. And the fastest and quickest way to do that is through rising energy costs. I won't play the whole five minutes, but we'll play a couple minutes of his commentary because that's usually pretty good. So you probably should distrust anybody who draws quick and dirty partisan conclusions in the hours after a national disaster. You see this happen all the time. People on TV, for example, telling you the gun lobby is somehow responsible for the latest school shooting, even as the ambulances are still arriving. Or how climate change caused those tornadoes at a trailer park in Indiana. Bill Nye, the science guy, blaming your pickup truck for extreme weather. These are not people who are speaking in good faith. They're not trying to solve problems. They're not even interested in what actually happened. They're lying. They're unscrupulous. And they will say anything if they think it'll make them more powerful. So best to ignore them. On the other hand, and this is also true, over time, it is possible to draw legitimate connections between decisions that politicians make and the catastrophes that follow. The rise in gas prices, for example. The price of gas in America now qualifies as a catastrophe. That's true no matter how you feel about carbon emissions, you still probably assumed you'd be able to afford to drive to work every day or take a vacation with your kids this summer or buy dinner in a restaurant once in a while. But now you can't, and gas prices are the reason you can't. Nothing makes the country poorer faster than rising energy prices. So how did this happen? Well, we're going to let you decide. We're going to play you a tape from a campaign event during the last Democratic presidential primaries in New Hampshire. This video was shot in 2019, at a moment when not a single person in the country really believed that Joe Biden had any chance to win his party's nomination. So because they gave him no chance, not a lot of people were paying attention when Biden was asked whether he would continue to take donations from the oil and gas industry. Here's how he responded. Kiddo, I want you to just take a look, okay? You don't have to agree, but I want you to look in my eyes. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, we're going to end fossil fuel, and I am not going to cooperate with you, okay? 
we're going to end fossil fuel. End fossil fuel? The basis of the entire American economy? How are we going to do that? And why? Biden didn't explain, and again, because no one believed he was actually going to win. It looks like he is following through on that particular campaign promise, Ryan. Uh, ruthlessly, I might add. And even some of his surrogates are out there saying, well, you know, it kind of hurts, but we have to go through the pain if we want to get to the other side of the rainbow with some green energy. And what precisely is on the other side of the rainbow? What precisely is this green energy? Does it actually work? Is it efficient? Is it anything that anybody wants? And here's the thing, in a really just, you know, Catholic sense, if we said, hey, this stuff's bad, which, you know, hasn't really been shown apart from some localized pollution it hasn't been shown you know all the stuff on the you know what but i'm not even, i'm not sure if the algorithms are adjusted to get us for talking about uh, climate stuff so um the, the agenda is is to get rid of the infrastructure we use and if you make the energy that we need to function too high i mean how do you go to work how do you go to church? How do you do the things you have to do if the gas is too expensive? And of course, that is ultimately what they want. Uh, that That's the problem is this isn't just, oh, we got to save the planet. The Saving the planet stuff is really just an excuse for uh, the other thing they want. So here is a little interesting tidbit. Uh, is that showing up on screen? Yeah, I got so it. So you are looking at a stamp that was just commissioned by the Swiss government. This isn't somebody. Some this isn't something somebody made on on some site to to go out. This is an actual government stamp. What is uh, this? It says Agenda Twenty Thirty. It does. And now let me go up here under the name Agenda Twenty Thirty. One hundred ninety three UN member states define seventeen goals, which provide a global framework for sustainable development. These are known as the SDGs, etc. In twenty twenty two, Switzerland will provide a comprehensive national report for the second time. So they're kind of rubbing in your faces. You know, for years, you talk about Agenda 2030, it was, shut up, conspiracy theories. That's right. Well, now, uh, they're just out in the open. They're just rubbing your nose in it. So here we are, conspiracy factualists, uh, pointing out, look, these sustainable development goals, they want to make it so you cannot drive your car, uh, except some allotted amount that they'll let you drive, maybe. And because that'll hurt the planet, right? But what it really is, is controlling you and limiting your resources, your ability to, to do anything. James, I want to give you the last word on this energy thing. I know you've got a van full of kids. You drive a certain distance. You go to one of those parishes, one of those destination parishes as well, where people come from all over. This is hurting the American trads. It, it really is. Yeah, it really is. And um, what's really happening right now is a lot of people are starting to feel that that pain and uh it's not coming from a good place what the government has done because what they've done is to create well i mean first of all we have that tag right from um was it the uh former mayor of chicago who said uh ron, ron Emanuel, who said uh never get never let a crisis go to waste what i started saying is never let a good created crisis go to waste you know basically uh they've created this crisis and they're forcing us our heel and it's affecting not just uh you know uh you know the people on the top but the people in the very bottom who need like uh i think brother was saying it's like people need to get from one place to another if it's not the shutdown where right, they forced you not to drive 
they've now created a, a situation where even if you get in your car, you're not able to drive. You know, you're not able to go to the grocery store. You're not able to go to church anymore. Uh, so now they, they they shut us down from traveling in 2020. Now they shut us down from actually utilizing our vehicles to get to where we need to get. Some of these places, like you've just alluded to, are an hour away. Some some are an hour and a half away, and um, it's causing all sorts of uh, frustration from the very people who uh, are going to be hurt the most from this uh, created crisis. Yeah. It is a creative crisis. And, you know, speaking of never let a crisis go to waste, nobody really excels at that the way the Canadians do. And in Canada now, just like that overnight, if you have two boosters, that's not enough. Got to have three to be considered fully vaccinated. What we also know from Dr. Tan and every other expert on COVID-19 is that although two doses still still protects significantly well against severe disease and death. Two doses are not enough now to protect against infection and transmission. And that is why we are transitioning now to an up-to-date vaccination definition of what it means to be adequately protected against COVID-19. Fully protected with two doses doesn't work anymore. Dr. Tam said that last Friday. It's now up-to-date vaccination that needs to be used when you talk about what Canadians should do, what we should expect of Canadians, and what this government should be expected to do in the future. He says it. Two doses don't work anymore. They did work before, but now they don't work anymore. That's, that's, that's just what he says. I guess we have to believe that, right, Ryan? I guess so. And it's funny if any of us had said that, um, got to make sure I don't get us banned again. Uh, <laughs> if any I, of us I gave you the that, hardest question to walk the tight wire on. <laughs> if any of us had said what he had just said in regard to the efficacy of those particular dosage schedules, uh, we have been banned from the social media platforms. Fedbook would have banned us uh, no. spreading misinformation, of course. Um, and yet that's just what he said. And so proving right, everyone, yeah, these don't. But now another one. You need more of what we're admitting has not correctly functioned as we said it would the last time. Yeah. Get more. And that's going to solve it. It's You know, it's just like government. Oh, there's a problem here. We'll just put more money into it, just like education and such. The United States is trying desperately to keep up with Canada. And in fact... Um... Dr. Fauci, I don't know if you know this. Did, did everybody know this, that he tested positive for COVID-1984? It's incredible that he contracted the disease, given how protected he is. Uh, so from his basement, he was giving testimony in front of uh, the United States Senate. Here's Rand Paul asking him about why we're going to try to jab all the children now. Dr. Fauci, the government recommends uh, everybody take a booster over age five. Are you aware of any studies that show reduction in hospitalization or death for children who take a booster? Right now, there's not enough data that has been accumulated, Senator Paul, to indicate that that's the case. The I believe that the recommendation that was made was based on the assumption that if you look at the morbidity and mortality of children within each of the age groups, you know, zero so, to five, five to 11. Right. So, so, let's, so there, there are no studies, and Americans should all know this. There are no studies 
on children showing a reduction in hospitalization or death with taking a booster. The only studies that were permitted, the only studies that were presented were antibody studies. So they say, if we give you a booster, you make antibodies. Now, a lot of scientists would question whether or not that's proof of efficacy of a vaccine. If I give you 10, or if I give a patient 10 mRNA vaccines and they make protein each time or they make antibody each time, is that proof that we should give 10 boosters, Dr. Fauci? Uh, no, that, I think that is somewhat of an absurd exaggeration. Senator well, that Paul. is the proof that you use. Your committees use that. That's the only proof you have to tell children to take a I'm afraid to continue the video because I'm not sure what's going to happen to us. But I do also want to point out a, a separate video clip in which uh, Rand Paul is asking Dr. Fauci why Fauci has been so opaque about the monies or royalties that he's received from drug companies. He hasn't provided any of this information, and he obfuscates the question. You can't even make this up. Another question for you. The NIH continues to refuse to voluntarily divulge the names of scientists who receive royalties and from which companies. Over the period of time from 2010 to 2016, 27,000 royalty payments were paid to 1,800 NIH employees. We know that not because you told us, but because we forced you to tell us through the Freedom of Information Act. Over $193 million was given to these 18 employee, 1,800 employees. Can you tell me that you have not received a royalty from any entity that you ever oversaw the distribution of money in research grants? Um, well, first of all, let's talk about royalties. That's the question. No, that's the question. Have you ever overseen, have you ever received a royalty payment from a company that you later oversaw money going to that company? You know, I don't know is a fact, but I doubt it. I well, well, here's the go- thing is, why don't you let us know? Why don't you reveal you- how much you've gotten and from what entities? The NIH okay, refuses. That- Look, that- we ask them. We ask them. The NIH, we ask them whether or not who got it and how much. They refuse right. to tell us. They sent it redacted. Here's what I want to know. It's not just about you. Everybody on the vaccine committee, have any of them ever received money from the people who make vaccines? Right. Can you tell me uh- that? Can you tell me if anybody on the vaccine approval committees ever received any money from people who make the vaccines? Soundbite, number one, are you going to let me answer a question? Okay, so let me give you some information. First of all, according to the regulations, people who receive royalties are not required to divulge them, even on their financial statement, according to the Bayh-Dole Act. So let me give you some example. From 2000. 15 to 2020, I the only royalties I have was my lab and I made a monoclonal antibody for use in vitro reagent that had nothing to do with patients. And during that period of time, my royalties ranged from $21 a year to $7,700 a year. And the average per year was $191.46. It's all all redacted, and you can't get any information on the 1,800 scientists. Your time is gone. We want to know, but we won't get to know. Say what you will about Rand Paul. I know he's compromised on a lot of issues, but at least when it comes to this uh, mysterious uh, pathogen, 
I think he's pretty good, James. I don't know. I, I kind of like what I'm hearing. He at least takes every opportunity to troll little Fauci. No, he's got he's got a point, and um, you know he's I mean he's one of the few senators in uh, Congress I can actually uh, listen to. I can actually sort of trust. You know, specifically, um, he's he's good on a lot of topics pertaining to uh, rights of Americans and to uh, you know fraud fraud on on, on many levels concerning uh, government officials. Uh, in this particular case, with uh, you know. Uh, COVID, um, he's been very good at pushing Dr. Fauci. And of course, you know, Dr. Fauci knows himself is protected uh, and he doesn't necessarily have to divulge anything. He can stall as, as long as he wants and nothing is really going to happen. So sitting before a panel, sitting before Congress, it's just a show. Say that, hey, you know, I showed up to your little hearing and I gave the answers, but nothing is going to happen. Um, you know, God bless Rand Paul for trying to get answers out of uh, Fauci, but um, you know, until we see real change in, uh, in the way we do things in, in uh, Congress, uh, all of this is just a pony show, Fauci's pony show. Brother Martin, I'm I'm just surprised that they're even like still talking about all this, right? Because we've seen travel restrictions lifted. We've seen most of Europe open up. You know, some of the continental Europe is still pretty strict, but a lot of like Southern Europe and 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 the United Kingdom is is all open. Um, you know, Canada is still absolutely fascist. We we rarely ever talk about Latin America because it's such a mixed bag. But I'm just surprised that with the economy being the way it is, with the with the war in, in Ukraine, uh, which which appears to be going pretty well for Putin now, uh, even though they don't want to admit that, um, it's like losses on all fronts for the Brandon administration. And yet, um, it it appears that he still has people who are who, who want to continue to play make believe. Well, I think it's because of the corruption of the medical system, in particular, that as as uh, Senator Paul was. Uh, pointing out is that there there are people that are financially invested in medicine who try to sell us drugs be, and and try to sell us drugs precisely to keep making money and so they have to keep this alive this 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 fear alive because as as Bill Gates has been saying there's there's going to be another one in the future and so if they show you how much that they were wrong if, if Fauci admits that he was wrong or that there was there's some other ulterior motive behind all this stuff uh, when the next one comes when it comes. Uh, People are, are going to disbelieve it. They're not going to rush to get their their jabs or dosages, all that kind of stuff, uh, immediately. As as a lot of people ran ran to it this past time. Uh, obviously, there's people still wearing masks and even wearing masks in their cars. So there's there's plenty of people that still buy into this. And of course, corporations are all woke. Uh, and so if, if the government tells them, hey, you have to shut down or you have to fire employees that don't that don't get their fourth uh, dosage, then then we're all still going, going to suffer. Especially in this hard economy, everyone's going to be even more strapped uh, because with inflation and, and losing their job, there's, there's going to be no, no way to bounce back. That's an interesting point, James. Actually, I hadn't even thought of that. Things are, things are going to be so bad, so tight. You're, you're going to be much more willing to comply with the next wave of lockdowns, restrictions, et cetera, mandates, uh, because of the fact that there's not going to be another job waiting for you. Mortgage interest rates are not going down. Your savings account is being eroded by inflation. Um, yeah, it seems to me like uh, they're they're perfectly positioned uh, for another wave of this hysteria. Right, and uh, think about this: if you had, for instance, uh, some sort of disaster that uh, basically uh, forced 
CMO to come out, CMO to come out and start handling uh, whatever situation we're, we're in. And the only resource for you as a citizen is look to FEMA to give you whatever sustenance you need. Well, guess what happens? It becomes easier all of a sudden to hold out your hand and say, or your arm and say, you know what, just jab me. I'll, I'll take whatever jab you're offering and um, give me some bread. Give me some, give me some blankets. Put me in a camp. Um, it's just going to get that, that easy. I mean, brother's absolutely right. Uh, they have us in a very vulnerable uh, position, but they're, but they're clever about this, right? So everything is inching and inching and inching toward a place like the slow boiling fog uh, in the water, right? Uh, before we don't have the ability to react as we should react. Right now, all the energy is going to get sucked out of us uh, by the time, by, by you know, by the time, it, and it's going to be too late because we can't react. They're pushing us here very slowly, um, and they're using it as a way to keep us tied down to the idea that something is going to get better. When in the end, we're going to look at something, we're going to be looking at something a whole lot worse, but then it'll be too late for us to react because we just don't have the energy. And we're going to say, I'm rolling up my arm, give, just give me the jab or give me whatever it is so I can, yeah. I can get past this thing. People are going to get desperate, and this is not going to help people's future desperation, Ryan, when we have meat shortages. We all love eating meat on this show. What you're looking at are tens of thousands of dead cattle across the state of Kansas. They say it's unprecedented. They also say it's because of heat stroke. Now, this isn't far from where I live. Not unseasonably hot here, nor are all the cattle in Texas out of there are experiencing the same thing. But this goes on for miles and miles and miles and miles. Uh, I forget what the figure is, Ryan. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's something like 60,000 head of cattle mm-hmm. are, are now deceased mysteriously because of heat stroke. And, um, well, you know, what does that mean to dairy and beef production in these United States? Huge, just. It's not heat stroke. I'm sorry. I know there's people that want to say that. Oh, shut up, conspiracy theorists. It's heat stroke. Um, heat stroke, they're not all going to die. And in even rows like that just drop dead from heat stroke. Some of them are going to be okay and walk around. Some of them would die. It wouldn't be a total loss like that if it was heat stroke. All right. So keep that in mind. Uh, but as we move toward the, you know, the dairy and the meat, uh, production. They're already strained to the max. We have uh, food processing centers burning down almost a weekly basis in this country. Again, uh, the coincidence there is out there will tell us that's perfectly normal. And then we get to, I mean, meat is the is one of the bigger problems because the, the way that meat works in this country uh, ever since the early 20th century is that, of course, the USDA inspects it all. It's generally, uh, since uh, the freezers have become viable for this process, they usually have a year of meat stored up in freezers. And so during the uh, unspecified virus of unspecified origin and the government uh, measures against it, they ate, we ate through that entire layer of frozen meat that that's meant to be the buffer between a massive crisis of meat production and you know, it's, it's meant to be there basically so for people to eat through while they are rectifying the problem and then build that back up. 
that is not being done. It's not being built back up. And on top of that, uh, plants are still closing. Now, a lot of those plants are not places I get my meat from, but it's still going to affect me because it's going to, it's going to drive up my prices. It's going to make things a little more scarce. It's going to increase, cause an increase of people looking around trying to find meat. So just because I'm not eating the chemical soaked soy product that is USDA meat, on the other hand, um, you know, that's going to affect everybody, no matter what you're doing or how well prepared you are. When you got your local farm, he's like, well, you know, prices for uh, ground beef are fourteen ninety eight a pound. Uh, I can't, uh, you know, I, I'm, I got more demand than ever. I can't charge you the five dollars that I've been charging you over the years for, you know, or what have you. It's going to all those costs are going to go up and their feed costs are going to go up. Uh, Mike, you're muted. Especially when that $5 doesn't buy a gallon of gas. Right. Brother Martin, first, we have the wheat shortage uh, from the Ukrainian conflict. Now we have a meat shortage. Uh, the next thing that they're telling us about is that our, our drinking water is toxic. I'll play the video here in a minute. Um, but you, you will live in the pod, Brother Martin, and you will eat the bugs. You will own nothing and you will be happy. This is Agenda 2030. They put it. On postage stamps, <laughs> quite literally. Um, what was interesting too is I, I saw a tweet of someone saying that uh, the FDA is no longer even going to let them take their black Angus to the slaughterhouse, and that they were just going to buy it for two thousand three three hundred dollars a head. And so that's another thing is if the FDA you know starts making more restrictions on on slaughtering your cattle and all that kind of stuff, um, it's just like going around shooting your chickens. They're not going to let us feed ourselves. So all all the preppers who thought having your having your own animals is it was going to help you through they've they've already thought of a solution to all of this um yeah I, I, can't. I forgot about the the avian flu and they were just wiping out people's personal chickens here's yeah. that toxic drinking water uh commercial <laughs> it's a commercial Undetectable levels of these permanent chemicals in our water. James, we know that our water supply has been tampered with. I, what was the thing a, a month or two ago? It was the snake venom in the water. That was a thing. That was a, that was a conspiracy. <laughs> Just wait for five years when we find out that's true. <laughs> and you're muted. No, you're, you're absolutely right. For many years, too, I and honestly, uh, I think what you may have uh, Mr. Alex Jones, but Mr. Alex Jones has always been about the water to whatever end, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, chemicals uh, in the water that were uh, basically uh, estrogen filled or other such things, birth controls or what have you. Water has always been contaminated. But, but what the EPA uh, has always told us is, well, you know, they're just little bit trace chemicals. They're not har harmful, right? So now they're dialing that back and saying, well, even if they're not, we, we thought they were not ha uh, harmful uh, and there were trace levels, but now we're saying even those trace levels are, you know, could be or are dangerous. So, you know, hey, folks, do yourself a favor. Get yourself a good water supply. Know how to treat your own water if you can. There, there are things out there you can purchase to help treat uh water 
never boiled water in your life, it might be a time to start start doing that. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a that's a great point. I want to end the first half of the show on this final thought. Um, it involves water because there are so many drugs in our water. This is a this is an underreported, and this is this is why you watch the rundown so you can hear stories like this that you're not going to get anywhere else. This is a woman, investigative journalist, uh, working from her from her own uh, home office here, who submitted a Freedom of Information Act request and figured out that up to 30% of drug testing has gone awry, and maybe some of those people are just getting drugs from the water. Who knows? Look at her two-minute report here. I'm a reporter for Vice News, and I have a new article out about a drug testing scandal in Michigan. If you've ever been tested for work or for court, you know how the process works. You pee in a cup or somebody swabs your mouth, they send it to a lab, and you get the results, positive or negative. You don't have much more insight into the process than that. But the thing is, there's a lot of ways it can go wrong. I filed a Freedom of Information Act request with Michigan about its drug testing contractor for the child welfare system, AverHealth. And according to a testimony I got back from its ex-employee, AverHealth's lab director, up to 30% of the results that were being reported to the state of Michigan were wrong. And these results determined whether people had parental rights, whether kids stayed in the foster system. And Michigan's not the only place working with the company. Around 30 other states contract with AverHealth and its results determine whether people get hired or fired from jobs and whether they go back to prison if they're on parole or probation. I hope you enjoy my story. Thanks. Brian, we're going to talk about the criminal justice system a little bit in the second half of the show. But suffice it to say now, are you surprised that up to 30% of drug tests are fake? No, not in the slightest, actually. Uh, most There's so many things in forensics and other things that are fake, and it plays on uh, one, public incredulity, of course, about authorities uh, messing around with things, and two, uh, too much reliance on watching things like CSI or whatever. So they think all these things are like clockwork, like science can't possibly be wrong. And actually, uh, you know, forensics isn't anything what TV makes it out to be. Um, I guess we get in the criminal justice stuff, but I mean, the, the, the FBI lab has framed people for, they invented phony sciences that don't exist, like hair uh, sample analysis. It doesn't exist. They can't tell the difference between your hair and a dog hair, but they have convicted people in court on the basis of a dog hair uh, that they put in. So, oh yeah, this is one of so-and-so's hairs because they, they don't know. Right. And, th- and the same thing comes in here with the testing. Yeah. So the company's not doing the test and it might not even be, this one might not even be a question of the government trying to go out of its way to frame people per se. Although I wouldn't be surprised if that goes in. I think it's more of a case, just the pure incompetence, no oversight, but yet this is what's going to be used to take away your rights or put you in prison or whatever it is that you need to get this test for. Yeah. Next James. Scam. I was just going to say it's, it's, it's a scam. And, and uh, there are people out there who are so hungry to have whatever next tools the future holds, and they're willing to take their career on it by uh, basically perpetuating a lie. It's interesting to us to hear this. Oh, Hair analysis. Oh my goodness, this is really interesting. You know, the world is really advancing. But what it is is, it's it's, a, it's like it's like a race to the moon. Who's going to get there first? You know, <laughs> Russia or the U.S. And I'm going to stop right there. 
You are leaving me hanging on that one. That was wow. On the second half of the show, we're going to be talking about groomers, of course. We have some Nancy Pelosi clips we're going to play. Uh, we, what else do we have? Oh, I'm going to take you around the country. This one is also not for children. It's going to be pretty disturbing. What is normal in these United States now? Just normal behavior. You're going to be shocked at what you see when we come back. guys quick pro- gro- programming note if you're watching this live right now or if you're watching it on youtube you're watching on the brand new rundown channel rundown has its own youtube channel it's to keep the tech oligarchs well on their on their heels really you're probably mesmerized right now by what you're witnessing and you haven't hit the subscribe button how do i know that because we're getting 7000 or 8000 views per video but only 2,000 of you have subscribed. Shame on you. This is you if you're that person. Okay, so don't be the mesmerized cat, all right? Be the, be the engaged cat. Be the cowboy cat and hit subscribe so that we can continue to do this. All right. Uh, not for chip. Well, let's do Pelosi first and then we'll kick the kiddies out. If there are kids that, and again, we say this, this is not a show for kids, but you can listen to this. Pelosi is so confused right now. Wine box Pelosi. I don't know how much box wine she's drank before walking up to this podium. She doesn't even know what war we're fighting. Like, look, we have the war in Iraq. We have COVID, which has, um, um... two fake things. all right here's what she also says brother martin nancy weinbox pelosi who has now been barred from receiving holy communion in her own diocese of san francisco of course she spends most of her time in dc being the um you know swamp creature that she is and uh well she's not going to be banned from communion in dc anytime soon but she is very very catholic didn't you know I'm a very Catholic person, and I believe in every woman's right to make her own decisions. Any other questions on another subject? Because I'm not going to be talking about that anymore. Hmm? She doesn't want to t- talk anymore about how she's a very, very Catholic person. I, I, the way she even says it, like, what, what, what Catholic describes himself in such a way? You know, we say, I practice, I'm a practicing Catholic, or... Uh, I actually practice my faith. I do this. I do that. But then, whenever it says, "Oh, I'm a devout Catholic," or "I'm a very Catholic person," uh, yeah, it, it's almost it's almost hard to argue in it with her anymore. Only because we know it's for 30 years now she's been arguing the same, uh, supporting the same agenda, and, and to no avail. Our bishops aren't going to do anything about it. Cordelione, he's he's been her bishop for quite a long time, and after, I mean, a, almost a decade of prayer, finally he does a little something. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's almost, it's almost, it's, it's all laughable. And then we say, we, you know, Corte Leone, heart of a lion, he finally has courage to do something. Then he says, Oh, we need, we need strong gun control. They all talk out of both sides of their mouth. They're all politicians. They all know if, Hey, if I throw uh, the conservatives a bone, I have to throw the liberal bones right after, because then, uh, you know, then, then I'll be in trouble. And I, I, I don't want to be deposed. I don't want to be removed. 
so it's all just a game. Nothing, nothing's going to happen in regards to the bishops ever doing doing anything. So it's, I mean, it comes down, it comes down to us just uh, we're evangelizing people, showing them what the what the true Catholic faith is, and then they say, why don't the bishops do anything about it? Well, that's the, that's what really a scan. If if someone doesn't convert because of, of who the bishops are, it's really the, the the loss of their eternal soul is really on the shoulders of the bishops and bishops aren't really uh, are, are never really concerned about this fact is that they're in such a position of authority that it's easier for them to go to hell than it is to go to heaven precisely because they could do something that that really that damns someone for, for eternity um and and yeah our, our bishops need to wake up to the fact that they're well yeah in medieval paint i always think of medieval paintings uh paintings from the, the middle the middle ages where there's people in miters just burning in hell um, yeah uh, what the, what's the famous quote, I think, from St. John uh, Chrysostom about the road to hell being paved with their skulls? Oh, yeah. um, we are going to talk about the bishops, and we are going to talk about uh, the powers that Pope Francis just stripped from them. But very quickly, just on Pelosi, Ryan, and James, I mean, I think she's, she's one of the most corrosive forces in American Catholicism today. I really can't wait for her to be out of public office, even if it requires her meeting her eternal reward. Well, she she's at that age, isn't she? She's uh, what 80, uh, 80, something something of that sort. So sooner or later, she's up there. Uh, yeah, sooner or later things are going going to happen, whether or not she likes that or or not. This would be the time for her to sort of take stock of the time she spent in public office, uh, ruining the lives of many and uh, causing all the others to fall, you know, basically into the pit of. Uh, Relativity, you know, when when uh, you know she says she's Catholic and she's not, and then she basically uh, uh, is running around uh, spewing the doctrines of hell, you know, on transgenderism and uh, what's the other thing, you know, uh, abortion, and there's one more thing that she often talks about, and uh, this has been her demo for. Uh, 30, 30 years in Congress, you know, so you need to sort of sit down and take a look at uh, what's ahead of her. Ryan, let me ask you a more pointed question about her vis-a-vis uh, Archbishop Cordelione, who I think did a good thing, but I agree with, with Brother Martin. He, he could have gone farther and he could have moved faster. Do you think that he went far enough? Do you think that he'll continue to uh, move in the direction of outright excommunication? No, I think now that he's done something, that's it. He's he's not going to go any further. And for me, I'm looking at it. Uh, if if we're really worried about her soul, as well as for faithful Catholics that might, you know, for whatever reason, you know, their parents voted Democrat and their grandparents voted Democrat and they're voting Democrat, and it's just, and they see her up there and they're thinking, oh, oh that, that kind of makes sense, just for their sakes too. People who otherwise just aren't particularly well formed, that. I actually have a lot of pity and mercy for rather than look at those stupid people, which is tempting to do. It really is. But I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that because, you know, I, I remember when I first came to faith and I knew zero. So what Cordelione really needs to do for them, as well as for Pelosi, is now that very clearly she has given him the bird and she has is, is continuing to go to communion manifestly that that's happening. And on top of that, she's shows no purpose of amendment. All right. Now, I think it's really incumbent to, you know, have it basically have a heresy trial. Let's clear the air on any ambiguity uh, about what she actually believes, because they'll play this. Well, I'm personally opposed and all this stuff. They'll use ambiguous terminology. You can't completely 
nailed down to she's clearly denying church teaching on abortion. So uh, then once you, once you can say, all right, do you believe that abortion in and of itself is immoral? And then, you know, get her on the record for that. And of course, she's never going to participate. Um, you could excommunicate her for not participating in it. Um, you know, he could certainly do that. But uh, it, I don't think he'll ever do any anything in that realm because uh, I'm sure he's worried about his job, to be perfectly honest. I'm sure he probably got some little you know thing. OK, you did your thing. You played up your your conservative credentials. And now, whether it's soupage or someone else telling him this uh, back down and we'll make her tone things down. And you did your job and you can call your conscience clear now, because really yeah. she needs to be excommunicated. That's what needs to happen. Yeah, and yeah. We, we should have a canon for excommunicating you for supporting abortion in legal formats. We don't. Uh, we probably should have one. Uh, but there it is. You know, that that really is what has to happen. What do you think we input. need to do? Oh, oh we need a revolution. Yeah, and we need it no, now. Not, not later. Now. Amen. <laughs> I like this lady. Okay, in a moment, I'm going to start playing some videos that are really tough to watch. They're not for children. I have to discharge my own uh, duties of my conscience to warn you again, triple warning, that children shouldn't be watching this. Really, really, a lady shouldn't be watching this either. What we're going to do is we're going to take you around the country. This is the new United States. This is the USSA where we all get to live. And um, I'm going to take you from coast to coast in a couple cities. On, on both coasts and in between, and just show you what life is like around the country. Let's start in Miami Airport. <laughs> Only in date, huh? We're not gonna let you board like that, sir. You know that. Got an ankle bracelet on too, uh, so I'm not sure if he can board a plane. But there he is in the airport, ticketed past security. He made it past TSA, people. So what does that tell you about TSA? Los Angeles, just a typical day in Hollywood. Glad Darth Vader's there uh, securing the scene. These next two are going to be really rookie, tough to watch. Have, I was going to say, if it was an episode of The Rookie, they would have chased him down and 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 all felt compassion for him and given him a card for some, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter social justice reformer to talk to. <laughs> let him go. <laughs> I want to take you back to the East Coast. I want to show you Washington, D.C., and then in New Jersey. Both of these are pretty tough to watch. The D.C. one, I wasn't able to edit out the language. And I wasn't able to slap a, uh, well, a sign on what you're about to see. So I'm really sorry. But hey, this just happens in restaurants in D.C. And no one does anything about it. Here we go. No arrest there. And in, in New Jersey, this is at a family-friendly pizza restaurant. This is a family-friendly performance for children. 
Notice what one child ends up doing towards the end of this video, if you can. kids handing a tranny uh, person with perhaps uh, some disorder of the mind uh, cash kids handing him him cash uh, this is the new United States of America that we get to live in uh, let's go around the horn on just reactions to criminal impunity um, disorder of all kinds and um, Normalization of uh, impurities of, of the uh, most uh, despicable type. Brother Martin first. Well, it's going to be somewhat of a self-inflicting wound because if inflation keeps rising and gas prices keep going higher, then no one's going to be probably going out to these events anyway here pretty soon. Um, but it is it's a normalization of a perversion, obviously, and they're trying to get into more public places. Um, and, and we have to strip ourselves from being a part of this economy in order to to get them to do something about it, to stop inviting people. Other, otherwise, I mean, looks like TikTok is, is helping out by ex- exposing their the hypocrisy and all that kind of stuff. But that, that only goes so far. They'll, they'll, they'll just keep pushing back. It's not something that they're going to just uh, be embarrassed about. Like, oh, we're sorry. Oh, yes, we were wrong. No, they're pushing an agenda. They want things to change. And so they're going to keep fighting. And as much as, as, there, as, a, as there any life in them left, they'll keep fighting. Um, so yeah, I mean, vote harder <laughs> in the sense that sure that you can make this illegal, but that, that's probably really not going to, not going to happen. Um, yeah. we have to change our lives. We have to change our lifestyles. We have to, and there's gonna be a lot of changing in our lifestyles coming here pretty soon with, with what we eat, how we entertain ourselves, uh, how often we go outside of our houses, um, and all that kind of stuff. And so get, get ready for the penance, get ready for the asceticism. Ryan, um, Dr. Taylor Marshall had Michael Matt on, and I love seeing those two on the same stream. I haven't seen that in a long time, and and it's it's excellent to see those two. One of the things that Marshall pointed out, and I had asked his permission to grab that clip, and I just ran out of time today, and I didn't get the clip. But Marshall was pointing out that we're not a Catholic country. We've never been a Catholic country. We have all, we have virtually no Catholic patrimony to to uh, to fall back on. He was saying this in the context of. You know, how Vatican II struck at the heart of American Catholics because their Catholic identity was their parish. It wasn't their culture. It wasn't their language. It wasn't their, you know what I mean? So it hit them hard because that's because it hit everything that they had. There was nothing else to fall back on. Mm-hmm. We're not a crypto Catholic nation. We've never been crypto Catholic. That's an absolute lie peddled, you know, peddled by a skateboarding doofus. But notwithstanding that fact, and I wish I had the clip to play it, and maybe I can play it later on as, as we're talking. Um, not only are we not a Catholic country, or nor have we ever been, we don't even have a culture. 
I mean, I mean, sodomy is not a culture. Uh, mental disorder is not a culture. Uh, th- this is what they're hanging their hats on. Criminality is not a culture. No, it's not a culture. Um, just uh, put out there, you know, I am friends with the aforementioned individual, but I absolutely 100% disagree with that whole thesis. This is, you know, anything that the idea of this country is uh, Catholic or crypto Catholic, you know, we can go all day into those kind of things. I wrote a couple articles on Catholic Family News on this subject. If you want to check those out, um, in terms of the, philo- the philosophical and political end of it, and, and testing that particular thesis. So, in reality, this has always been a deist slash Protestant nation where Catholics have lived, and that's that's the reality of it. There's certain elements, obviously, that have common culture with the Western tradition that we can certainly look to. But that doesn't make this place, this country Catholic. You know, there's no culture here except what was brought with Catholics who moved here, who came here and settled and created communities here. And and that the American Catholic experience has been one of you know general persecution and general tolerance, kind of, depending on the mood of certain people in certain areas. And it's been where basically an island within a wider culture that's often hostile. You look at 19th century political cartoons, such as during the Catholic school question, for example, in New York, and you have cartoons depicting Catholics all ready to, to invade if, uh, you know, just waiting on their word from the Pope and stuff like that got recycled for a hundred years, even to the point when Kennedy, a very liberal Catholic, mind you, ran for president, the, you know, they, they were still circulating at Catholics, you know, waiting for orders in the Vatican to get their guns out and take over, right? That was a big thing. And so here we are. What's the Catholic? The only time you had Catholic culture coming is when various groups, ethnic groups, typically uh, trying to keep Catholic culture as it was there, they would try to form political parties. Uh, high Germans from Bavaria tried to form political parties in Minnesota and other places. And the U.S. Yeah. bishops absolutely fought it. No, we want our <laughs> scraps from the Americanist table. This is the That's 19th right. century. This is before we got to, you know, post-Vatican II bishops we complain about way back then. Uh, yeah, you know, Bishop people, Ireland Bishop was, was, one of the, yeah. was one of the worst. Ireland was absolutely one of the worst in a whole number of ways. He was absolutely against Catholic schools even. He didn't want Catholics having their own schools so kids wouldn't get browbeaten for praying to Mary and thrown in the corner with a dunce cap or forced to read from the King James Bible. He thought that was great because it shows what a great secular experiment this all is and we're all going to live together and be happy together. And it's ludicrous. That's not the way the world's supposed to work. That's not the way a Catholic society is supposed to work. We're supposed to transform society to Christ. And that that's the point and the mission of the Catholic Church. And instead... The elites in the church in this country uh, have for, you know, really pushed to get us basically getting the scraps from the secular American table. Just, you know, that being American first and Catholic second. And you have on top of that, you know, things they created to try to help foster that kind of image. So the George, George Washington conversion myth. Right, which is absolutely mythical. Washington was a Mason. He died with. Uh, he was. He went from being kind of interested into it because it's deist aspect to being much more fanatical about it towards the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties. And you know, he laid the cornerstone of um, you know DC with a Masonic apron made for him by Lafayette's wife. He was buried in full Masonic rites. And the only sources alleged for this story is a written account in nineteen o one that claims. Washington's slaves have passed down an oral tradition, doesn't cite any document, any evidence for that prior to 1901. So 100 years after the event, that would never stand up in court. 
not to mention yeah. the other fallacies in that George Washington conversion story. The uh, Robert Bellarmine was the secret influence on Thomas Jefferson. That's the matter of the articles I wrote at Catholic Family News. I won't rehash this here and take up everyone's time, uh, but you can find those there. Two-part article on that whole subject. All these are myths created, and in, in, in a few more too, to try to bring Catholics into the American fold in such a way where we're Americans first and being Catholics, just as ancillary thing to this American identity. And that's okay. ultimately what it is. And that's not true patriotism because true love of your country is one of giving it the very best thing you can give it, which is the Catholic faith, making it yeah. a Catholic country is the very best thing we can do for our country. And in yeah. uh, otherwise we don't love our country. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. Uh, patriotism doesn't mean accepting all the blemishes of your country. It means to will the good of the beloved. It's it's a, it's an act of charity. James, the lesser, uh, you actually have some Catholic patrimony uh, amongst the four of us Americans. You know, on on this stream here, you come from you know uh, good stock, long time uh, Catholics with a real culture. Um, bound together by language, bound together by traditions, bound together by families, even surnames that have meaning. In these United States, we have none of those things, and we don't even have a border right now. How can we even claim to be a nation, let alone a Catholic nation? That's a good question. I've been talking about this for uh, for years. A lot of people, and, and you can kind of hear this in the way they, they argue, you know, they're searching for a culture and they want so much to belong to something that's bigger than they are and, and it has, has more history. But then the only thing they tend to fall back on is color. They talk about being white. What the wall hey, you know, just so you know, when the same page here, white, white does not have anything to do with culture. You know, it's kind of what's been foisted um, on us by the uh, Darwinists uh, and the Marxists who create, uh, you know, some sort of uh, arbitrary culture based on color, you know. And now one of my favorite things to say now is, hey, look, you know, uh, you're, you're talking about um, uh, European culture. There's no such thing as European culture because each, each country as it exists today, they have, uh, you know, independent culture from, from, from the other countries, even some countries. Like Germany, Germany used to be uh, obviously uh, before it was uh, unified. You know, you, you had large parts of uh, Germany that had, you know, I wouldn't say nothing, but they didn't have a lot of things in common. You know, uh, and, and you know, even that itself, you know, people are uh, missing that 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 huge point. You know, and now in my in my own story, um, I I can point to, uh, you know, the idea of creating a uh, country based on just proximity and that doesn't always work you, you have to have other things in common besides being next door to somebody being you know sharing a border with somebody you have to have certain things to bring you together you know to be shared shared beliefs shared shared uh a custom you know things of that nature shared language of course is a is, you know is a big thing uh but today in the united states what we're being told is uh you know, we're a nation, but then yet within this nation, we're still divided because we feel some some part of us uh, does not want to be tied to what was created in 1776. Um, and ultimately, you know, when Catholics did move here, uh, 
kidding. There was there was a fight for culture. You had the French, you had German, you had uh, some of the groups that were you know fighting to create some sort of culture here. But guess what? You know that 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 is all slowly, if it hasn't already been eroded, that's slowly been eroded. You know, uh, you go. To, I mean, there's a reason why you go to New York and you have places like Little Italy, for instance, or Chinatown. Um, you know, you go to San Francisco, you have uh, a Russian Hill, for instance. You know, um, various places like this. You know, or you, you go to uh, um, uh, what's it called uh, Los Angeles, and you have huge fractions of uh, Lebanese. You know, who are out there, um, and these people have pride. They have culture in the things they do. And uh, instead, we're supposed to be rah 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 American, but yet we don't have any discernible uh, culture to, to use to, to hold us together. You know. <laughs> When a transgender person is coming around, we're supposed to wave our flag. And uh, when there's a war you know, in Ukraine, we're supposed to wave our flag. And we're basically waving a flag for anything that's coming, that's up and coming as far as uh, current affairs goes. You know, that's that's how and that's how we raise our flag. So this is continuing to build some some sort of uh, uh, unity, uh, confusion, frustration. Um, we're soon going to have to, first of all, break up into little parts in terms of the U.S. Uh, we're going to have to expect something uh, big that sort of pushes us back into that idea of being small, you know, uh, within whatever neighborhoods or regions in order to find an identity, in order to, to basically have a culture. Um, um, you know, yeah, so I'm not going to keep <laughs> spinning off here, but basically culture is a, is a big thing and uh, we need to uh, see ourselves uh, not part of this new spirit uh, that uh, basically makes the voices on us. We need to uh, find true culture and, and embrace it. And part of finding true, true culture is, first of all, coming together as Christians, uh, as Catholics primarily, uh, primarily. And then uh, that, that'll help us uh, Let's talk about being small for a second uh, in the context of um, the Catholic Church. Let's talk about decentralization versus centralization for a moment. Uh, Latest and greatest from Pope Francis yesterday, I think, was that uh, Brother Martin, he is stripping from uh, all the ordinaries in the world. The however many 2,000 plus bishops in the world now no longer have the ability to approve a public association of the faithful. So you start from a de- you start as a de facto association, which is what you are, then you become a private association, then you become a public association, which is I think what the nuns in Gower are, for example. They're a public association of the faithful. And as you move on, you become a pontifical right and et cetera, et cetera. So you move along, you know, as you grow and have demonstrate more permanence, et cetera. These are the steps of you know um, of canonical status, let's say. Now, bishops around the world, Brother Martin, do not have the ability to approve public associations of the faithful. In other words, they cannot erect religious communities in their diocese without Pope Francis personally blessing it. Break this down for us. Well, there's a lot, there's a lot to break down um, from two different directions. One is one of the differences between a private association and a public association of the faithful is the bishop granting a canonical mission to 
the association. So a private association of the faithful exercises its ministry in its own name, whereas a public association of the faithful exercises its mission in the name of the church. Um, so that's kind of one one big difference. I've looked in, in uh, quite a few books and all that kind of stuff. There's, there really isn't a list um, to really to clarify uh, what it really means in the name of the church, but it's, it's something more public that you can say that you, you know, on, on behalf of the bishop, um, we're, we're, we're here to do to do ministry, to do an apostolate. Uh, what's interesting about this fact is uh, two things. Previously, uh, Pope Francis changed canon law regarding a local bishop to create, to establish, to erect a religious institute of diocesan right. This is unique in the sense that uh, an institute of diocesan right pertains to the individual local church in the sense that there is a religious, there's a group of, there's association here that has that has this charism that responds to a need of the local church. And so the bishop was, would would be able to recognize that, establish it, give it the rights and responsibilities that it needs according to, to, to law, its protections, uh, to perform this ministry in, in his name, in the name of the church, um, to, to the people of God in his diocese that he's been entrusted to. But then the Pope goes and says, no, you can't establish an instit a religious institute of society of apostolic life of diocesan right without Rome's approval. And so th then that was kind of overreaching, Rome kind of reaching into each and every single diocese in the world saying, you can't really care for your local church uh, without our approval. So that's kind of, you know, where's the principle of subsidiarity here? Does Rome really understand what's going on in each local diocese to know whether or not this charism corresponds to the needs of the local church, all that kind of stuff. They, Rome falls back and says, well, the reason why we can't do that is because we can't have duplicate charisms all across the world. So we can't have an, the charism for the Franciscans, OFMs, um, du duplicated by a new small community that's just doing the same thing, living the same life because this community already exists. The bishop could just ask the OFMs to create a new community uh, or to send three or four or five friars uh, to his diocese and, and you continue to exist that way because it seems that they're, they're afraid of, of small splinter groups rather than one major group. Um, so that's one thing there. But what Rome just did was extend the, the arm reach from Rome even further so a public association of the faithful would be the, the, the step prior to becoming a, a religious institute of diocesan right. Um, of course, with, with less rights regarding canon law, a little bit more malleable, more easily to be suppressed. Um, but essentially, that, that's what communities like myself and, and others uh, are shooting for, because it's, it, it really is the, is the first um, stage of, of real stability, real recognition in the church. You can be a private association with recognized statutes or approved statutes, but that still doesn't give you a solid uh, stability with um, and everything to to be able to say that well you're you're, you're well established you you've got a future here because of course when vocations come in they want they want a place where you'll be able to exist and not something that's going to fold within a year or two um so that that was kind of the goal so what's interesting even now is that there's a lot of communities that are stuck in a particular stage a lot of traditional latin mass communities for instance i mean you mentioned the benedictine sisters in gower i know the wyoming Car carmelites um out in, in well in wyoming uh, they're also a public association of the faithful uh, Dom Alquin Reed's community was a public association of the faithful. In one sense, they were stuck in advancing upwards because they needed Rome's approval to, to become a religious institute of diocesan right. But now what makes it interesting is they're sitting in that zone where already Rome's attacking. They don't, they don't obviously want to know if there are traditional Latin mass communities that are being erected in dioceses around the world. Um, and so they want to be able to stomp them out from, from Rome before to, to not allow bishops the opportunity to, to allow these groups to grow. Um, they, they use the excuse of duplicate communities. One of them is the Franciscan Friars, uh, Franciscans of the Immaculate, that there were some seminaries that broke off. Now they're founded in England um, and they have Latin mass and all that kind of stuff. 
And so it really seems that, that Rome is really looking into each and every single diocese and wanting to know whether a community is offering the traditional Latin mass and living a traditional religious life. Uh, I won't go into my unpopular because my unpopular opinion has something to do with, with what may come next from Rome. Um, and it's going to be somewhat devastating. But also, to me, personally, I, I feel vindicated. I know all of you guys uh, watching for the past two years have, have been hearing the fact that I said the future of religious life is irregular. The future of religious life is irregular. And this is precisely why. Um, Rome has the capacity to destroy the traditional re- religious life, discourage it with everybody's obsession, absolute you know, obsession or fixation on everything being um, legal when the head, the heads of the church, those operating are, are, are trying to destroy the faith. Like, obviously, this, this is a crisis. So everyone seems to be in a contradiction, either separating the, the institutional church from the faith, which is somewhat of a contra- contradiction, or separating the present faith from the past, which is also a contradiction. So it puts everybody in this, this terms of, of contradic- contradicting some, something of, the, of, of what we're used to, what we're used to uh, Catholicism being. Um, and so that's, that's kind of really the, the gist of things. So it, it's really bad ecclesiologically because um, I think now Pope Francis is, is allowed the heads of dicasteries to, to even be lay people. So you have a lay person, you, you'll have a, bish, a local bishop having to ask a lay person to give a canonical mission to, to an association in his church. That's, that's terrible ecclesiologically. But we really know why they're they're uh, throwing aside ecclesiology. It's precisely to 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 uh, attack all of these new traditional communities. Let me ask a quick follow up of you, brother. My follow up question is this: It's very clear from his public statements that Francis is absolutely obsessed with traditionalists. He's yep. obsessed with our comings and goings and and the things that we do. He insults and mocks the grandmothers who wear lace. Uh, he he insults and mocks restorationists, you know, as if it's a derisive uh, term. Um, and clearly, he's taken steps to limit the Latin Mass, uh, traditionalist custodians being among them, um, but not the only thing. Mm-hmm. But his 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 hatred for traditional religious communities far far outpaces his hatred for just the Latin mass for lay people, in my estimation. You look at core Arans and how insidious that has been, especially to Carmelites, but to, but, but to any uh, uh, contemplative orders of women. And now this, this change to canon law, which is not only directly affects you and your community, um, but, but every single community. And it's a much more, it's like, it's a land grab that is so much more insidious, so much more obvious than just, uh, TC, am I am I off on that, or or am I reading that correctly? In effect, it's just kind of a logical next step to TC, in the sense that uh, I think in, in in his accompanying letter, Pope Francis said um, one of the things that he was shocked by was that uh, diocesan priests were starting traditional Latin masses in their parishes precisely because of their own need and not the needs of the faithful. But it's precisely the pastor of the church who feed the sheep. If the pastor isn't fed. With what he's going to feed the sheep, it's coming kind of like the as an analogy when you're in the airplane and the the flight attendants are instructing you that if the oxygen machine uh, oxygen mask falls from the the ceiling, you put yours on first, and then for those of your children, because if you pass out, your your child's out of luck, uh, is not going to be able to reach or put the oxygen mask or know to put the oxygen mask on or whatever else. So you always have to take care of yourself first. And this this is always um, also analogous in the spiritual life. I mean, the soul of the apostle says this, we're supposed to be not uh, channels, but reservoirs. We're supposed to fill ourselves up with, with the graces from meditation and our spiritual life first so that we can hand it on, hand it on to others. Same thing with, with tradition. I mean, if, if, if the priests aren't fed or nourished, uh, but, but properly, they have nothing to pass on to the faithful. And so 
Pope Francis flipped it on the head, flipped just the passing on the apostolate on its head and said, no, it's the faithful that matter most. Priests, you're just channels. You're, you're, you're basically nothing. And so this is what I've experienced in the, in the last 10 years of, of my religious life is that when you're when you're a lay person, you matter in the sense that we'll we'll give you your, your destination parish here, the traditional Latin mass parish here, because we want the, the laity to be spiritually provided for. As soon as you enter seminary, as soon as you enter religious life, you no longer matter. Your spiritual needs no longer matter. You don't get re- traditional Latin mass or you only get it once a month or something, something obscure like that. Uh, which a lot of lay lady don't understand that they can get in their cars and, and drive three hours to a traditional Latin mass. And they're like, Oh, look how much we're suffering. But when you enter tr- uh, seminary or you enter uh, a religious life, you don't get that. Op- not even that option. You don't even get yeah. the option to drive three hours, four hours, five hours to your church Latin mass. You yeah. just don't get it. And so that that's, it's, it's, it is another uh, persecution of those who are supposed to be handing on to you guys, the fruits of their meditation, the fruits of their spirituality as St. Thomas Aquinas is you know, to contemplate and to give the fruits of contemplation. They're, they're precisely at, at, at attacking that um, so that they do want not only the, the faith, the context, the dogmas to die, um, but even the, the communication of grace. Brian, how do you square the centralization of uh, public associations of the faithful with the new synodal, you know, synod on synodality, right? The synodal church. Like, how are you? How are you? How, how do you square those things? I, it seems like they're in conflict, right? it's a you're trying to square a circle to do that because i mean really when you get down to it synodality and all this stuff about synod everything it's not meant to actually listen to anyone or anything except the pre-approved message that's being ramrodded through with the synod as an excuse it's like a a plebiscite with a you know predetermined results like we just want this to rubber stamp it right and that was widely speculated with the uh, document to bishops, their survey to bishops about the traditional Latin mass it was widely speculated and has just about been admitted by a number of insiders that the, uh, the, the it was overwhelmingly positive, uh, the response of bishops with a few voices, and then it spun to be overwhelmingly negative. And so all of these things are essentially, um, you know, a rubber stamp thing to begin with. So it, But the claim is, of course, we're listening. We're listening to you. We actually really care. And at the same time, we're going to take away your power to do anything within our say-so. As we've seen, you know, here between core orons and now this new change to canon law, it it basically causes the bishops to be uh, clerks or secretaries for the pope that aren't truly governing their diocese. Basically, the Pope is governing their diocese directly. And, the, and this is not how the church has understood a bishop, right? This is this is not within how Christianity and ecclesiologically we've understood the office of a bishop. Uh, bishops rule, as St. Robert Bellarmin teaches with the, the entire tradition in ecclesiology. Bishops truly rule their dioceses as a shepherd. He is like the Pope in his own diocese. And, you know, things affecting the universal church in terms of, you know, the, what, you know, when the, the liturgy was elevated, for example, to being at the discretion in its management at the discretion of the Pope, that, uh, you know, the bishop's job was still seeing that that was carried out in that diocese. And there were still local traditions and local customs they were allowed to move on with and have happen. And the day-to-day management of a diocese, what, what does the Pope or his cardinals know about some diocese, some far flung place away where they don't know the language or the customs. And that's why the, you know, the Bishop in the ground is truly their shepherd. And he's the one who's supposed to respond with the spiritual need. So 
even like the, the big lie that we usually get in uh, when people relate history, oh, the Council of Trent came in and centralized everything. That's actually not true. In fact, a lot of things were centralized through the Middle Ages, through permissions, especially to religious orders. There were a lot of religious orders that could preach in a diocese, whether irrespective of whether the bishop thought that was a good idea or not, because he had some privilege from some cardinal in Rome. Or again, you know, there would be a canonical house or a chapter house for this order that's a you know technically pontifical right or that had a special privilege from the Pope, such as the Franciscans and Dominicans did, to hear confessions and preach. And so if you had people in there that uh, probably shouldn't have been doing either of those things. The bishop really had no say so. So Trent actually goes a long way to restoring those powers to bishops to say, no, no, the bishop has to have, you know, give his permission for this, even if it's coming from Rome. There are other things too, where bishops were given a lot more power at Trent and they had enjoyed through the 1400s. Right. And so Vatican II, the whole idea is, well, yeah, we got to decentralize so many things that have been centralized. And of course, it's moving on to the liturgy and so many things. Yet, whenever it's anything that seems to favor tradition in any way, shape, or form, oh, no, 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 we got to re-centralize that. When it's a bishop completely ignoring Rome and de desecrating a church built by immigrants, um, such as uh, like Rembert Weekland, uh, first publicly gay bishop, uh, <laughs> at least it wasn't public about it till after he retired, but paid money out of diocesan coffers to shut up an ex-lover, right? He destroyed his church that was his cathedral church that was built by immigrants yeah. who were yeah. doing the hardest, most terrible backbreaking work to afford the money to buy the bricks, to and even he, lending his services themselves. And Rome said, no, you can't do that. And Weakland gave him the bird, and he did that's, it anyway. That's one of the things no that gets overlooked. With this iconoclasm, it gets overlooked. It's the, the tacit levels of racism that are involved in destroying right. all, all of these churches that were built by immigrants who came here with nothing and built them by hand. And then you're just going to rip out um, central aspects of it. It's a great point, Ryan. James, I want to get you in on this. Just you know the, the, the weird fascination that Francis seems to have with, with trads. We keep being told on the one hand, James, we're an insignificant number. You know, there's not enough of us to matter. We're not even 1% of the, of the global church of a billion or 2 billion people, whatever it is. But then on the other hand, it's like, we're the only thing that Francis likes to talk about. We're like, if he's going to smack talk anyone, it's always going to be us. And especially in his latest comments where he says, we have 40 more years to convince everyone that Vatican II is awesome. He says, it's the trads in the United States. He's talking about us. He's talking about the rundown right now. I feel I feel personally attacked. I don't recall uh, the, the many uh, questions that the theologians had in the church after Trent saying that we need we need hundred more years so that uh, the people can <laughs> uh, you know assimilate into the uh, new into the new teachings of uh, Trent. Uh, this is absolutely absurd. It's, and you're right. It's, it's an attack on uh, on traditional. That minute number of traditionals that we keep getting told are going to wreak uh, wreak havoc on the church. There's a big problem because we are starting to see people are turning away from what they were promised was a new springtime. Uh, this springtime has been around for business notes almost going on something years now and uh there's nothing but desolation in the, in the wake of this new springtime and so people are starting to see the fruits 
of uh, that council that was held oh too long ago, maybe not, well, you know, in the eyes of us who have been experiencing, you know, the, the uh, disaster that came after it. You know, it seems like we can sort of sit back and dial this back. This is the time, actually, you know, Mike, this is the time right now to dial back uh, the, the uh, nonsense that came through and devastated the church. This is the time to dial it back. And he knows this, which is why he says we need 40 more years yeah. to implement, to see the implementation of uh, Vatican II. What he's saying is, I need more time to actually rip apart the vestiges of tradition that are left, starting with the lace, Mike, starting with the lace. Gotta get the, yeah, so, yeah gotta get rid of the lace. Yeah, gotta get rid of the lace. Yeah, so yeah, to wrap it up, this is a travesty, and uh, it's it's going to be a, a, a problem for uh, Bergoglio because more, the more he does this, the more people are starting to realize uh, that uh, he he is, in fact, uh, Francis the Destroyer. Um, whether or not this is apocryphal uh, or not, you know, that's the name that fits right now is uh, a Pope who is a destroyer. Yeah, that's right. That was his. You know, I didn't understand that nickname for a long time, and I, I also didn't understand the dictator pope uh, moniker. Right. I'm now starting right. to understand that. And the people, right. my hat's off to people who figured this out in 2013, 14, 15, 16, and they started calling him the dictator pope back then. Right. I think that was pretty uh, prescient and insightful. The thing that we have to do now, though, of course, towards the end of the show, which we do every time, is we have to show you, uh, we, have to, we have to arm you with the most up-to-date uh, movements of our enemies on the battlefield, specifically the groomers. And uh, the groomers are, they're everywhere. So in order to prepare our minds this week, what I thought we would do is just listen to a minute of sanity uh, about modesty specifically, because we're about to see some very immodest things. And there's one in particular, actually there are two, they're really tough to watch. We're going to watch them because that's what we do. We're men and we have to do the tough thing. Uh, but as men, we have to cleanse our palate here, our mental palate, uh, with Father Isaac Mary, of course. Fashions. I said, how do you resolve these women in, in, in the dress in bikinis? And you're committing sacrilege. It's disgraceful. And this is a problem in society. Everywhere you go is in modesty. You can't walk anywhere. You have to have blinders, the billboards. Everyone's dressed immodestly. People come to church. You see this. Everybody's wearing these yoga pants, uh, these, uh, what do you, spandex. You see these women, even 350 pounds with spandex. So what are you, on drugs? Thank God, that's no temptation. <laughs> so, remember our lady came in to, uh, in our lady good success. She said, Christian modesty in young women would be unheard of in our time. And it's true. All right, Christian modesty, especially amongst young women, is going to be unheard of in our time, and we are not going to see that. Final warning, we're about to venture into the groomer segment. I'll give you an easy one up front. This is a non-binary teacher, school teacher, who is admitting to the fact that her teacher, her students watch her on TikTok make these videos. primer i guess the one that's really hard for me to watch guys is where the mom the mom groomer 
is forcing her son to watch this pride parade. Have you seen this? this is on I think this came from Town Hall. Uh, she's she's like forcing the kid. He's trying to turn around and find safety in his mother, trying to bury his head in his mother's body as as young children do who are scared. And she, instead of comforting him, is turning him back around to face the the, the grooming. I mean, it is this is absolutely shocking. Here it is. Um, it gets worse. Uh, this is a compilation of some school teachers. I'm not quite sure who put this together, but bro, I think it's Breitbart put this together. Uh, some of these you've seen on the rundown before. Some of them you haven't. These are individuals who are tasked, charged, uh, uh, trusted with the education of our nation's children. Hi, I'm a queer teacher. I'm gender fluid. I am also a witch. I would come out to my students every October on National Coming Out Day. I would use that as an opportunity for my students to learn how to receive somebody coming out to them. I ended up telling the, my students that I was gay. So they were asking me if I was, because I kind of alluded that I was. So I kind of let them wonder and ponder on it. So instead of teaching social studies today, um, they just asked me a whole bunch of questions about being gay. Let's talk about gender roles and talking about them in the classroom. Talking about gender is not something that's out of the realm for children. Research says that there is no age too young to talk about pretty much anything. Kids as young as three and four are actually aware of their gender identity. If they know about it, they're ready to learn about it. So very aware of who they like and who they don't like. They're very much ready for these topics and are way more accepting than adults when it comes to discussing these topics. My classroom is one of the gayest places probably on the planet. Most days of the week, I come to school in stilettos so I can create an explicitly queer space for all of my students. Everything is completely covered in rainbows. I've got flags everywhere. I've got queer literature. Parents might complain, and there's actually a way to be really sneaky about supporting specifically queer students. Dropping a pink triangle somewhere in your room makes a huge difference because kids look for that. Recently, we started wearing pronoun pins, and the kids get to pick a new pronoun pin. We have some that pick like she, her every single day, and we have some that change it up. And I just double check with them if I call home what name they want, what pronouns they want, because a lot of them will just use their given name and their given pronouns. So just double check that. I like to avoid gendered language when I talk to my students. My students really like guys, gals, and non-binary pals. I even refer to them as different animals, you know, just to keep it light and fun. To say that pre-K through third grade are not ready for such topics is actually internalized homophobia and transphobia. I guess uh, there's a consolation that they're all they're all jabbed. They're all jabbed. That's a good one. <laughs> um, so they're protected from the plague. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, I mean, all of this is kind of disgusting to watch, but it's it's more and more hideous. It's 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 going in the public schools, um, and and it's going to be more and more accepted in in Catholic schools. We just heard of a a bishop who had to remove the permission to for a Jesuit school of using the, the title 
Catholic, uh, precisely because they were flying an, an LGBTQ plus ISJ flag in their SJ school. And what did the Jesuits do? I mean, this is the second one uh, in recent memory within like the last five years that has, has had that uh, taken away from them, second Jesuit high school. And what do they do? They just keep calling themselves Jesuit. So, I mean, it's not it's not really uh, uh, it's not unironic that we add SJ to the initials of LGBTQ SJs precisely because they just continue to, to use their name. This is Jesuit theology. This is Jesuit. This is, it's, it's become its own religion to be Jesuit. I, I have to uh, give a quick shout out to Mark Becker in the chat who says we should arm teachers. <laughs> and I know he's being sarcastic on that one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. James, I mean, look, we say it, we say it pretty often. Uh, for most people in most situations, I, my, my opinion is it's a mortal sin to send your kids to public school. I don't know what more we can do to convince people of that fact. Uh, these videos, if these videos don't convince you, then you don't care about your kids, right? I mean, it's just that simple. Right. And, and you saw a seeming, seemingly, uh, I hate to use the word, uh, uh, heterosexual gentleman in that um, video that you just uh, shared with us, saying that, uh, yeah, kids are ready at whatever age they're ready because if they're asking questions about it, then they're ready. And that is the language of somebody who is intent on grooming. Um, and groomers don't have necessarily uh, one look. They have many looks. And what might seem normal to us, you know, you send your kid, kid off to school, public school, uh, the teachers look normal to you, but you have no idea what sort of uh, uh, thoughts are running through your mind, you know, when they have the kids in front of them and, and how willing they are to share things with your children that they have no business uh, sharing. The state has given, has given teachers, you know, in some instances, you know, the right to uh, talk about these things. And it started, right, we, op we opened that door with uh, sex, sex education in school. Yes. Um, and that's going right back now to uh, reap <laughs> the uh, rewards, quote unquote rewards. Um, it's a big mess. Yeah. It is a big mess. And Ryan, I want to play one more video and then kick it over to you. I, in my mind, I titled this video, The War on Reality, <laughs> The War on Identity. In this month of the Sacred Heart, which has been inverted by the enemies of God into some other meaning uh, in, in June, uh, there are a bunch of uh, demonstrations for people demonstrating the, uh, one of the deadly sins, the, the root of all sin, pride. And um, so this is this is a reporter on the street. She's asking people what their gender is. There's also saying it's gender for a, for a human being. There's sex, uh, whatever. Uh, nouns have genders. Um, notwithstanding that fact, as uh, the, the the grammatical distinction, I want to warn people that there is a person who appears in this video extremely immodestly dressed, and I was not able to figure out how to fix that, but. I think that the interview is important enough for us to listen to it. So when the, when the time comes, you may need to avert your eyes, custody of the eyes. But this is the, the war on objective reality is is to this point. And Ryan, you'll react to it in one minute. Um, I'm gay. Yeah. <laughs> what age did you know that you were gay? 
Um, I think at like 10, I knew that I, I think at 10, but I wasn't like, I wasn't clear on my gender. Yeah, I, I think it, it was around like 10 as well when I, st- I started questioning if I was bi. And then since then it was kind of like a, a slippery slope because I kept, I was like, am I bi, omni, lesbian? And then I, I kind of like came to the point and on the now recently I've been like, am I pan? But then I like, I think now I'm starting to realize that I'm queer. But yeah, it was, it started around 10. It wasn't like fully formed, but I guess like that's when I realized, wait, that's a possibility. Yeah, I am genderqueer, trans mask, and queer. What's trans mask? Trans mask is like people under the non-binary umbrella at identifying like or presenting mask. Masculine? Yeah. What about you? Um, I'm trans and uh, un- my sexuality is unlabeled. Um, I use he, him pronouns. Yeah, and I use he, they pronouns. Tell us what you guys identify as. We're asking everyone here Gay today. Fuck. Gay. Gay. Okay, cis, um, what is it? Cisgender male. There we go. I don't know. Gender, gender neutral or gender fluid. I think that's what they said. I don't know. I'm confused. Do you identify as gender fluid? <laughs> I don't know. She, her, it. I feel like, honestly, honestly, it should not be a bad thing. Like, I've talked to people who go with they and them. I'm like, well, in the grammar of things, how would you want to represent yourself? I was like, I mean, I guess it, because it's like, you're, you're it, you're the it. Like, it shouldn't be a bad name, it should just be owned. Gay. Yes. Yes, I love... She identify as he, she, her, oh. they. She. Um, pronouns are he, him, sometimes you stay, I don't give a shit. I guess you could call me gay, I'm homo-flexible, really. I do like some women, but mostly men. You saved the best for me, just to, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, my goodness, yeah, I really don't even know where to start with any of that. I mean, it, it it's a lot like the feeling I had watching one of the clips from Matt Walsh's new documentary. And mm-hmm. what the other person was saying was completely contrary to reality. I, because it, I mean, we're just talking about basic biology. We're just talking about anything else. And I think we've talked about this before. It used to be your sex, male and female. And then, you know, it was like, oh, gender. Now, what's gender? Gender is a grammatical term. I mean, it comes from genus, generis in Latin, means the type of thing. You know, masculine, feminine, or neuter. It just, they're grammatical conventions. Sometimes they vary in different languages. But, you know, like the light is feminine. It's why in old, you know, early modern English, you'll say the ship is a she, you know, or she'd be an old, a good ship, sir. You know, why is she? Because the ship's gender is neutral. I'm sorry, not neutral, feminine. And so so on and so forth. But it, it's not related to biology. It's it's just grammar, right? And so now it's like it, we're using grammar to try to forge a new reality, essentially, that contrary to actual reality, observed reality. And to do these things, oftentimes, I mean, you look at it, you have to do X number of surgeries that are very expensive, mind you, that are a big money maker for uh, pharmaceuticals and for, for surgeons, but mostly pharmaceuticals. Because now, once you go trans whatever, right, people with gender dysphoria, you decide to treat by continuing the problem that they have. Uh, now you've made your moneymaker because they need to keep taking drugs 
to continue, you know, injecting these synthetic hormones to keep them going in that direction. And so, on, so which again helps create build craft and continue to force in this this false reality. And that's really what it is. It's a, it's a false reality. It's not real. What are you gay? <laughs> I wish it were that simple, Father. It's not that simple anymore. Now we now we got homo flexible is the new word. I've never heard homo flexible before, but I guess that's the new thing. All right, there's, there's I, always a new one. It, it, there'll be even more crazy new ones, I'm sure. I know. Before, I, I uh, can't. I can't keep up with. I, you know I'm sure yeah, even they it, can't it, keep it, up with it. Right. You know what's interesting is, uh, you know, in the good old days, we have kids who are probably the age of. Uh, uh, Therese or Dominic Salvio, and uh, uh, w w what were they doing? They were trying to figure out if, if they're going to be religious, if they're going to be maybe Dominicans, Carmelites, uh, Salesians, or something. But now <laughs> we're stuck on figuring out this fake identity, or if we're going to be this, 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 or you know, uh, you know, buy this, or it's 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 amazing. You know, this is how far we've descended. I don't even know what half those words mean. It's like it's like when you stand in really line at, at a coffee shop, you know, and, and, you, and you walk yeah. by a Starbucks or something, and people are ordering things, and you're like, I don't even know what you're yeah. saying right now. It's funny right. that they're asking each other, what, what yeah, am I? What, what did I say I was? That's, <laughs> that's that's my point, right? So you kind of see these people are actually they're making it up as they go. Yeah, you know, and this doesn't exist. You know, they're they're feeling uh, the pull of a trend. You know, the the, the pull of the next. Uh, big you know thing that everyone's gonna be talking about oh what are you the teachers are going to school uh you know presenting these things to kids and they're destroying these kids minds and head imagine being 10 years old and saying to yourself oh i i wonder if i'm this or i wonder if i'm that or having to go back home with 10 and go hey mom my teacher talked about sort of all these things today which one do you think i am i mean it's 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 the inversion though of like You've, you've been to the grocery store and you've seen this like cantankerous old couple. You can tell they've right. been married for like 47 years. Yeah. And the guy is like looking at the salad dressing. And he's like, Maeve, is this the dressing that I like? You know, <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> there's nothing wholesome about that. Hey, which one of these things do I like? You know, you know what I like. But now it's just, there's only, you know what? It kind of makes you want to just... I don't know. I'm gonna send him to outer space to find another race. All right. We have to... That's not, by, by the way, the rundown doesn't endorse that. It's a mortal sin. You can't deliberately darken your reason uh, like that. Medicinally made. Right, and you can't say we're endorsing it because we're showing it. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, all right, it's time. To Griff. Brother Martin, you're up first this week because Brian is looking over his shoulder like he's going to go grab a book. There's no books over Ryan's shoulder. I just see a massive cathedral. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's actually well, the Via Borghese. Oh, there you go. Via Borghese. If you can say that 10 times fast. Anyway, uh, my offer is still out there. I got plenty of uh, extra calendars. If you're a college student, if you want a, a traditional pre-55 Augustinian calendar, just go to our contact us page on our, our website and uh, use your school email in the contact us page and tell me what, what address to send it to. Um, also good for any church millions and employees who, who wants a free calendar. Um, there you go. My other grift. I had another grift. We'll come back to you. <laughs> 
<laughs> we won't skip. We won't. We, you get two a days today. This is like this is like uh, you know spring training here. All right. Uh, well, I remembered anyway. <laughs> okay, so put that down. All right. So uh, this uh, was about a month and a half ago, I believe, that uh, Pope Francis beatified uh, Pauline Marie Jericho. And so this lady right here. <clears throat> Can't see because the screen screen. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Okay. It did show up. And you could read about her in this wonderful book. If Oh, here. Man, it's hard to figure how to use this thing. Uh, <laughs> you know what? Here. Hold on. Give me one second. I'll just. Uh... All right. So. They Lived the Faith, a uh, fantastic book, uh, biographies of a good number of Catholics that uh, fought the good fight for Catholic culture, for reform and change in the era following the French Revolution. And so if you want to know more about now Blessed Pauline Marie Jericho, uh, that is a great book to start. And then uh, the book club, Walden Light, uh, it's a book on uh, St. Colette, wonderful book, uh, which oh. I do highly recommend. Uh, she is a 15th century uh, poor Claire, and she reformed uh, the order starting during the Western Schism. Uh, she was in France, and the French king had acknowledged Pedro de Luna as Pope uh, as Pope Benedict the Thirteenth. Uh, wait, no, is that right? Twelfth, sorry. And he was, of course, an anti-pope. He wasn't actually the pope, but nevertheless, that is. Um, you know, what happened? So she began founding the, the Poor Clares according to the primitive rule. There was a lot of that going on. And you think about uh, the recent thing, not wanting too many orders uh, with uh, X and Y, you know, have the same charism. It's not a new thing for the church to try that, but the church has always backed off from that because it's it's always been, you know, seen as stifling the movement of the Holy Spirit because of the fact that sometimes they do have to move out of the original orders in order to reform them. And so you have, I mean, if this whole philosophy they're, they got going today uh, were in place in the 16th century, you would never have gotten the Discals Carmelites. If it were in the 15th century, you would have never gotten Colette's order of the uh, poor clares of the Colettine reform. Or uh, on uh, St. Bernard de Siena and John Capistrano, on their side of it, you never would have gotten the observance. And so there's this rigid push to say, yeah, we, we don't want to duplicate the charisms. Mm -hmm. It's essentially stifling the Holy Spirit. So anyway, so that's, uh, that's you know, we're uh, highlighting this month and we have many uh, more books at MediatrixPress.com. As you know, we're moving. Things seem to be moving in the right direction to, to get my family into a new home. Uh, we're limited in our budget, but we're still making it. So, uh, you know, just barely. So <laughs> any support, um, you know, we, we've got because we got the bid for getting, uh, you know, everything ready and all our loan paperwork. And everything is just like almost to the dollar. Some of that's overestimated, but you always find new problems as you go. Yeah, it costs more money. And so uh, plus I got to come up with closing costs. So anything, uh, any, anything you can contribute via uh, sales, you know, would, would be great. I'd much rather uh, people bought books rather than doing fundraisers and yeah, because everybody's working hard, everyone's uh, almost everyone has jobs. Uh, you know, the one person in the chat earlier, uh, afraid doesn't, but otherwise, well, <laughs> you know, there's one person here on the stream that doesn't have a job, but uh, we won't, we won't, right, go we there won't right now. It's, it's not my turn to grift, everyone's working uh, hard, and so, so on and so forth. So, anyway, so that's that's my grift, right? Uh, if people want to support you directly, look, this is a tectonic change in your life, 
and it came suddenly and it was unexpected and it's huge and you have seven children if people want to support you directly is there a way for them to do that um yeah you could always send uh info at mediatrics press on paypal if if you were so inclined i I don't want to ask for it you can send a check to our offices here if that's um you know if again if the spirit moves you um also we do have uh translation projects which the money for that usually goes to my editor yes yeah i can't have you do that because if you donate to say the the bellarmine project or the alphonsus project i have to use that money to pay my editor and uh you know put back in the fund to pay everyone else who's donated to that the book so yeah let's not do that if your only intention is to help me out during this time, which, by the way, we were planning for and we were taking steps to do this next year. But unfortunately, it came a lot earlier than we expected uh, as our landlords had to shift things in their plans. And so that resulted in us having to find a new place. So here we are. Um, anyway, so, yeah, just I would say a check or PayPal. Uh, those are the best and easiest ways or, uh, you know, buying a lot of books. All right. Sounds fair. Brother Martin, you're up for your second grift. All right, take take two. Okay, so someone, uh, first of all, the Old Blades of St. Augustine are very thankful for all of your support. Past few years, you guys have sustained us. You've helped this uh, religious community to grow. Um, there was someone who left a, a comment in the chat last week that I want to kind of highlight and kind of explain as well because I, I've never tried to hide anything and I've always been clear with all you guys who we are, what we're going for, and that the church saying no to a traditional mass community isn't going to destroy us, that we're going to persevere. I thought that it made that always clear. But two of the things that this this particular comment said was that, one, I was hiding that I was living at the Old Roman Seminary uh, the first year of our existence, and two, um, that it was inevitable that we would be affiliated with the Old Romans. Now, I don't believe I hid the, that fact only because there's a Google business page um, of the Oblates of St. Augustine in Our Lady of Constellation Monastery, that I had to create and I had to put in our address for. And the address I put was 105177nd Street North, St. Petersburg, Florida. It was it was that exact address. So the only way they could find out that we lived there was the by the information that I uploaded to Google. So I, I made it Googleable. So I don't believe I was hiding anything. Um, as far as the inevit- inevitability of being affiliated with the old Romans, uh, that was never our intention. But I, in one sense, I, I grant that, but that's because of the side of the church. Now, when we first started, uh, we, we had a priest in the Diocese of Tyler that suggested um, to, to Bishop Strickland about erecting us and, and welcoming us in the diocese, and he was just uninterested. So we moved on from Strickland. Uh, we asked a bishop in Idaho. He, he was uninterested. I, I actually ver- personally vi- uh, visited Bishop Gracida um, in Texas, and he called Bishop Parks in St. Petersburg. Bishop Parks said, I have enough priests, but I know the Diocese of Venice, Florida is looking for priests. Let me call them and see what I could do for you there. So the Diocese of Venice called. They wanted someone for Hispanic ministry. I guess it's on my last name, uh, but we told them we wanted the traditional Latin mass. And they said, don't call us. We'll call you. We had to move out. We arrived in Missouri. Uh, of course, I have a whole video online about our relationship with the bishop there, all these nice emails, all that kind of stuff that looked like there was hope. Um, but then they found out that some slanderous information um, about our fundraiser that we had. I wonder from where, um, but then that got destroyed. So uh, I've, I've, I've given it a, a sincere and honest effort of, there was also the Diocese of Lafayette in Louisiana. We were looking at a property there, an old Benedictine monastery. I, w- I had several interviews with the uh, vicar general there, but ultimately they wanted the uh, some sisters to buy it uh, to, to make it a retreat center. And they were going to make it pretty much impossible for us 
um, to, to buy a house there because they said we needed permission um, for every little single step, which buying a house isn't, there's, there's not, not a time to get permissions to, to move and buying a house. So um, they didn't want us there either. So we, we gave it an honest effort to, to, to find a bishop and all that kind of stuff. But as the recent um, news comes from about a public, public associations of the faithful in Rome, um, they're, they're going to hunker down on, 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 on new communities, on new traditionalist communities. So was it inevitable? Not because we were immediately going to affiliate ourselves with the old Romans. If it's inevitable, it's precisely because the church is going to push us uh, that way. So that's that's kind of my explanation. I, I've, I've, that was that was really quick. I'll probably make a video about it later on um, next week or something and put it all out there very clear and concise, uh, only because I want to be open and honest with all you guys, because I know some people are, are, are iffy about a regular status and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think within the last few years, and especially on the rundown, we've explained that this, in order for tradition to survive, this is kind of a temporary situation that we all have to embrace. So, all right. Uh, thank you for the clarity, honesty. James, you got to grift something. Can you at least like do a fundraiser for a microphone or something, <laughs> a better laptop? Can we grift something for you? <laughs> yeah, all, all in, all in due time, all in due time. So I, I will add, I will add to uh, Brother Martin's uh, just previously stated uh, grift there. You know, if if I were uh, in his shoes, and for instance, somebody uh, who was uh, state of a contest, uh, you know, priest or even bishop, who's Sanborn has said to me, I, I know your situation. Uh, for us, you are irregular, but it's dire what the church is doing to you. Here's a house, stay in this house. I would not turn that house down. Are you kidding? I would I would take it as, you know, uh, proof of charity, and I would uh, immediately take advantage of that uh, charity. Anyway, I digress. Um, here's what I want to talk to you all about today. I enjoy cases. <laughs> I enjoy grifting uh, Alfonso de Liguri. And why this book in particular? This book is called How to Converse Continually and Familiarly with God. This book is it's, uh, essentially about how to grow closer to, to God. And it's a privilege, especially right now, to have the time to meditate on these things before we are pressed for time. We hope things get better, but we know ultimately things are going to get worse first before they get, before they get better. Um, and what's, what's better in a time of frustration and a time of confusion in the world than a mind and a wit that is sharp? Because you have been learning how to converse with, with God. This book is a very small book. It's got about uh, maybe, I would say about uh, 60 pages in here. But every bit of information that's in here is saying Alfonso makes it easy for you to understand how you need to talk to God and how you need to become familiar with, uh, with him in order to converse with him, share things with him, to ask things of him, and to ask the things of him in confidence, right? And so we know we cannot doubt when we ask God things, we have to believe. And we may not know when things will be fulfilled, but the very fact that we believe uh, does much spiritual good good to the soul. So um, th this book, you can pick it up. It's uh, Tan. I'm not sure if Ryan's uh, uh, Mediatrix Press carries this, but this is a Tan published book, and it's a wonderful book. Uh, you can use this for daily meditation, uh, and you will not be disappointed. Excellent.
Excellent. As a general rule, I don't usually publish stuff that's also already out there, uh, whether it's from a large publisher or a smaller one. If it's already out making sales, one, I mean, just as a business standpoint, the ROI is not terribly good. And something that's already kind of, say, if I want to do my own version of True Devotion to Mary, there's already like three or four of them on the market. The ROI is not good. And I don't want to take away from other Catholic publishers who've done, you know, put out books and have this out there to buy. And so I'd rather be doing the stuff that nobody's doing or it's like a really poor facsimile and I could make it a lot better. Yeah. That's, that's the only time I usually do that. Excellent. All right. One more grip. The thing I want to grip this week is I want you to catch my interview from a couple nights ago with his excellency, Bishop Athanasius Schneider. I want to pull up one card that I brought onto the screen when I interviewed him. And I'm going to read it to you. It says, this is a quote from his book from pages 300 to 302. He says, quote, Archbishop Lefebvre was a great man. He passed on the faith, the liturgy, and formed new priests. Under no circumstances should he be accused of being schismatic. It would be appropriate for the Society of St. Pius X to be officially recognized by the Holy See, and to be fully integrated into the life of the church with all canonical rites. I think this will happen one day. Lefebvre was a man who lived a saintly life and had no schismatic intentions. I asked His Excellency about that quote. We talked about the regularization of the SSPX. I asked him if he thought that the SSPX should consecrate more bishops. And if you want to hear his answers, you're going to have to check out the interview. I think it was a newsworthy interview, uh, and it is on the RTF main YouTube channel, RestoringTheFaith.com, if you want to check out that interview. Guys, we have to do the Unpopular Opinions. Everybody's been waiting. We have hundreds of people watching live. Thousands are going to watch this in the end. We have to do the Unpops. James, I hope you thought of one, buddy, this week. I hope you did, because competition is going to be stiff this week there's also uh last week (laughs) oh yeah you gotta pull up last week yeah 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 stein smoked us all oh i know (laughs) i thought your opinion would do it for sure but uh especially the way i wrote it but nevertheless (laughs) i just think i think stein is has such a huge audience that he just went out to his to his people and he was like hey just low-key vote for me guys That could very well be the case. That could be it. I, I think it was an unfair fight, to be honest. I think it should be all four of us against Stein on the next one. That <laughs> could be. Okay. <laughs> all right, Ryan, you're up this week. Okay, so we all remember that wonderful psyop of QAnon that uh, came out and told us to trust the plan and that all, everything would be great as long as you just come out and support Donald Trump and Trump's playing 60 dimensional chess against the deep state. He's going to beat the deep state. And yet uh, (laughs) they were obviously playing at a higher level than he was because he's not the president in spite of all the times we've heard. But within all that stuff, um, one of the things that the QAnon PSYOP focused on very heavily is something that also happens to be true, uh, which is the child trafficking amongst uh, politicians, Hollywood, uh, big financiers that what, what a a complete horror story uh, that is. And it did so almost obsessively and so much so that a lot of human trafficking became aligned, lined up. So in in the the imagination with QAnon, so the two became one. And then with the utter destruction of QAnon and the falsity of 
all of its predictions as far as Trump beating the deep, deep state, uh, state and everything else. So the uh, human trafficking uh, story now is almost in the minds of mainstreams, as mainstreamers and normies discredited at a time when it was first starting to finally gain traction. So my unpopular opinion is that QAnon has done more to hurt the, the war on human tra on child trafficking Ooh. than any cover-ups in the ma mainstream media. Ooh, that's a good one. Brother Martin, this is going to be a solid week. It is probably, except for mine. Mine is simply that the next move from Rome, um, because they really look like they're, they're cracking down on religious communities in general, is that they're probably going to mandate that each bishop uh, perform a visitation on each of the public associations of the faithful that do the traditional Latin Mass. Uh, and there will be orders to either uh, force them to do the Novus Ordo or suppress all of the public associations of the faithful that do the Latin Mass. And there's quite a few. I know, I mean, I know of only a few, but I mean, they, the Wyoming Carmelites, and, and this is part, particularly because there was an article also released that explained why the uh, dicastery of uh, religious institutes and societies of apostolic life want they want property. They want to turn into luxury apartments for, for the cardinals and, and for other uh, real estate purposes. Um, and so those who especially have, have property, um, they're, they're going to be the eyes of the tar or target's going to be on them. Um, so that's my next unpop is this is going to be the next move for Rome is, is visitations for the public association of the faithfuls um, and, and suppression. All right. James the greater. Okay. All right. So here's what I was thinking about um, going back a few weeks when I mentioned something about this topic. So we've long talked about the problems with the American church, especially with the first archbishop of Baltimore, John Carroll, uh, whose nephew was a signer of the, independent, uh, the, the Declaration of Independence. Uh, we we uh, tend to think about, traditionalists especially, tend to think about uh, the time before Vatican II is being a little bit sacred, uh, but, uh, you know, based on a lot of evidence that's coming out now and with the way things started, my unpopular opinion for this week is the church in America has always been progressive. The caveat there, of course, is with a few shining lights, such as John Dagger Hughes. So my unpopular opinion is the church in America has always, always been progressive. Mm. Okay. I see where you're going with that one. All right. Mine's going to take a little bit to lay out. I was told one time in my own living room by a very close friend, actually. And, and at the time, I, I don't remember if we had four children or five children. Uh, but I was told that by that point in my marriage, I really should have eight or nine. <laughs> and that I was doing it wrong. And I was told this by, with a very serious face by someone who has had a bunch of children as well. My unpopular opinion is that children are not a consolation prize and it's not a competition. It's not a competition to have the, 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 the largest family in the parish. And if that is your goal, uh, you're doing something wrong because every single child is a unique blessing from God. I was told that in the end, when we go to heaven, we're going to meet the children that we should have had. But that's just not true because those souls will not exist. The only way that a soul can exist is in the creative act in which we human beings share. Uh, so, you know, look, if you're open to life and God gives them to you in a certain way at a certain cadence, then that's God's will. It's not your will. There are things we can do to frustrate the creative process of almighty God. And we shouldn't do those things. There are also things we can do to frustrate 
caring for the life that we already have in order to create a new life. We can tell the woman's body that she's not actually caring for an infant when she is. And, and, and I don't think, I, I think that's equally wrong. I think to deprive an infant of, uh, of nursing, for example, of sleeping with his or her mother, of nursing on demand, of, of, of ecological breastfeeding, uh, to get to introduce nipple confusion with, uh, with, with bottles, to introduce chemicals into the baby. I think that's all bad. Solely for the purpose of having the biggest van at the parish? Solely for the purpose of having the biggest family at the parish? I think that's bunk. And I think that if that is truly the competition amongst trads, and you've lost your way, you don't know what you're doing. The command from Almighty God to be fruitful and multiply doesn't imply that you neglect your children in order to have more children. Um, so that's my unpopular opinion for this week. And I just want to note that the virtue always lies in the in in the mean. Okay, it's it's neither extreme, and you can see this. Uh, the the most obvious one that everyone points out when they're trying to make this point is you know what is courage? Courage is not uh, uh, not having any fear at all. Um, the extreme of courage is foolhardiness uh, or vainglory. Uh, the the lack of courage is of course you know. Uh, uh, being a scaredy pants, I forget what's called, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, but, but, you, but you look at any of the virtues and they are, they tend to be uh, in the means, um, not on the extremes. And uh, look, we can be extremists when it comes to developing and cultivating our virtues, but I don't think we should be extremists with uh, being like, Oh yeah, I got 17 kids and you only have uh, nine kids. So, you know, as a result of that, I'm the better trad. And if I think we're, if we're doing that, it is, um, well, it's, it's going to be a problem. It's going to be a long-term problem. Because here's one other thing, and this isn't part of the unpopular opinion, but this is just something that Brother Martin points out all the time. You know, who are we if we have all these children, if we have families of 27 children with no vocations? The trad movement is not producing the vocations that we need to be producing. We might be producing the number of souls, but those souls are choosing to live in the world a much higher percentage than in the history of the church. So there's a real problem of holiness. There's a real problem of virtue that's that's lingering in the background that no one wants to talk about, but we talk about it here on the rundown. I can echo that too, as I have eight kids. It's a struggle. Or I have seven living. I have one on the way. So it, it's a struggle because I have to work. I have I work upwards of 12 hours a day. And, you know, and then I go back and usually I'm putting out fires and I'm trying to fix this and trying to fix that. And kids, they don't just need attention. They need education. And you can't just say, oh, yeah, well, the wife will do it when she's got two, you know, a screaming two year old and a screaming one year old that just wants her to do nothing but sit there and look at her. Right. She's not going to be able to homeschool with that. Right. It's just not going to work. The dad needs to be involved, needs to actively be involved. You can't say, oh, yeah, we'll just let the priest do religious education, um, you know, because they're, you know, they're going to you're going to be in a classroom. They're going to give general stuff and they expect that to kind of be the like a buttress to instruction that's taking place at home as well, because parents are the primary educators of your children. And so marriage is a hard vocation. It's not easy. You can't just say, yeah, yeah. It's a, I mean, in some ways, it's harder than than religious life, because religious life, uh, St. Francis de Sal. Francois de Sales says this, that marriage tries, you know, man's patience more than religious life. 
now religious life has its own degrees of perfections and its own trials and it's not anything to be scoffed at but the married life doesn't get the same amount of graces you're not uh entering into that level of contemplative prayer that you will as a religious yeah everyone's called to it at some level everyone's called to be holy and to be a saint so you, that means you necessarily everyone's called to enter contemplative prayer at some level or another but you know you're not you're not a religious you're, you're a, a you know a married w- woman or a married man with yeah. children made in god's image and likeness that need you and so it's don't you know, leave certain things to God's providence and be prudent and responsible. And I say responsible in the correct term of that, the correct means of that in terms of your use of the marital act, not in terms of obviously what the world would hold with that word responsible. If I can't win this week, then I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to even give on pops in the future. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, you saw the brand new intro. It took about a week or more of all of our collective work to make that we don't have an outro. So what I want to leave you with this week is the feast of Corpus Christi from, I'm not sure the year, maybe it says it in the video, but this is supposedly under uh, Pope Pius the 11th, one of the great ones, perhaps one of the last good ones, to be honest. Um, this is what Corpus Christi used to look like. Thank you for watching the rundown. God bless you. And good night.